Welcome to New Horizons. This is the podcast for the Frontier Psychiatrist. The following audio is from a clubhouse room on myths around bipolar disorder, hosted by Jeremy Fox and us, his friends, and took place on the 9th of August, 2021. Tune on in. Nothing particularly significant or important. It wasn't uh, terribly dramatic. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. That's crazy when we've got effective interventions at our disposal. What does that mean? Artifact sizes, empirical questions answered left and right. A lot of psychedelics became illegal. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Life. Welcome to the show. The front is psychiatrist. Let's go. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. All that's going on here is that these people do not have a language for talking about their thoughts and their feelings. And as soon as they start talking about their thoughts and their feelings, they don't have to do crazy things. They don't have to do crazy things. cat as well it's a boom of sphere club members here all right um perfect not even eight o'clock yet hello doctors carlene and owen i'm just setting hello. the stage here encouraging I see people owen still has his why do you still have your lullaby hat because <laughs> it's awesome it's rather fetching it is 8 p.m i guess if you've had a long day at work it can feel kind of the word fetching well done thanks i'm in mod mode I'm in mod vocabulary mode, and here we have Vint. Okay, wonderful. And we've already got some hands being raised. Oh, perfect. Wow, okay. So let me go ahead and do that. So I want to set the stage here for everyone. We are going to chat a little bit here and then immediately transition into accepting questions about bipolar disorder. So I can see people are already champing at the bit to do that. Um, I want to pass it off to Drs. Owen and or Carlene if there are any initial preliminary announcements that either of you want to make. Um, sure. So, yes, yeah, so you're here in the Sphere Club, and on Fridays we have our New Frontier show, a Creator First show. And this Friday we're doing a special show on uh, NFTs, and it's fine if you don't know what that is. Um, we're going to be focusing on uh, see this little cat in my picture. It's called a blazed cat, and it's raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for for mental health for Mental Health America. So check that out 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time, and uh, you can sign up for uh, notifications at asksphere.club. I'll send out the link uh, before the show. Definitely looking forward to that. I think it's a long time that we have the Frontier Psychiatrist do a trendy, amazing intro to NFTs for people who might not be familiar with them. It's wonderful stuff. We are here discussing myths about bipolar disorder. Owen, I want to toss it to you to see if you want to get us started with any particular myth. For some reason, I feel like you might have something to throw in here right at the outset. Why would you imagine that? <laughs> Just a hunch. <laughs> So I, I just tried uh, in, in uh, to, to set up my, my my fancy microphone, and then I had this frustrating moment of the clamp falling off the desk, and I thought this is metaphorical. Um, myth about bipolar disorder: it's fundamentally a mood disorder. 
that's what I want to start out with. The reason people are throwing at me because I might have things to say is because I'm a psychiatrist for children, adolescents, and adults. I also have bipolar disorder. Um, and I have been treated by uh, a variety of people on my way to get to be a well, relatively well uh, human being, which includes Maria Okendo. I've uh, been in a couple of studies as a young person, um, and so I've gotten to see it from kind of like every side, um, both as a researcher, a clinician, and a patient. And so I have lots of strong feelings, but the, the myth I'd want to start out with is that this is primarily a mood disorder. How would you primarily categorize it then, if not a mood? I don't want to get beyond the purview, but this is such a fascinating thread to pull on here. So one of the things that um, I worked at the Bipolar Center at LHI, and um, Long Island Jewish Medical Center has a uh, specialty program for bipolar disorder run by Dr. Rafael Braga, and um, they use a therapeutic model there called Interpersonal Social Rhythms Therapy, or IPSRT. And as the first thing I will tweet out today is uh, what that is about is essentially taking um, the, the framework of IPT and adding on the most crucial piece, which is about sleep and wake. And my contention is that bipolar disorder is fundamentally a circadian rhythm disorder. It's about sleep and wake and when that happens. And the mood component, although flashy, is secondary. Mm, that's very um, uh, synchronistic here with what I've been looking at, actually, about how um, manic episodes can be kicked off by interferences in sleep. And um, what was the, the what was a term here used about like social disruptions? Um, so, I mean, that's just par for the course. Okay, uh, I want to jump in here and get to vent did you want to share something i know i, 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 yeah. I want to kind of come from a slightly different one of the reasons i love this topic and this is i think you know this was probably the first time i was actually really involved with um the this particular venue was in talking about uh, borderline personality disorder and so for me one of the really important things is um, kind of undiagnosing or actually the overdiagnosis of a lot of the um the bipolar disorder stuff and so for me the myths are about getting away from some of the you know oh it's okay to be bipolar but it's not okay to be bpd and then, and then people getting incorrectly diagnosed so that's that's my big interest i'm also a child adolescent uh, psychiatrist for those of you who don't know out there and an adult and in personality disorders is what i really love and specialize in so that's just wanted to add that in beautiful so roshnik i know you've been hard at work today and when your own mod squad duties and you'd said that you might be fading out here. So do you want to toss in maybe one or two quick, short bipolar disorder myths before we head off to questions? Sure. I'm just going to say that people think that bipolar disorder, as Dr. Owen said, is a mood disorder, but there is a consistent genetic influence to bipolar disorders and that it can be activated in the brain in response to uh, environmental stimuli like stress. I would like to say that um, all bipolar disorder is not the same. It's a myth that it's in your head or it's all the same disorder. It's not. It's not a personal problem. It's one that affects um, more than 12 million people in the United States. 
and it's the sixth leading cause of disability worldwide. So it's not this sort of fringe disorder that's just like your own thing. It's prevalent and it affects a lot of people on every level. And um, there, it is a real brain biochemistry organically based disorder. Super fun with, fact. With, with no one size fits all cure, by the way. My my family is a huge huge uh, part in that all of us are in it of the NAMH data set on this topic. Well, the more you know. <laughs> there you go. That's a. A great segue here. So, um, everyone, uh, we are going to go to questions. I'm so happy. Look at this. We've got such a healthy amount of uh, raised hands and questioners already. Just to let everyone know here, the red dot here um, right behind the word facts means I am recording today. So we're recording. We may take some of the highlights here for Sphere's very own, very cool Substack, And you can uh, follow that at asksphere.club. Text join. It's a really cool substack, but I'm biased. I'm part of it, so what are you going to do? Um, but with that, I would love, love, love to open up to questioners here. Keep those hands raised. Feel free to ping friends in. This is such a crucial topic. Let's go to Jessica. Thank you for your patience, Jessica. You're our first person with a question or myth about bipolar disorder. Hi, thank you for um, having me. This is actually my first time that I've actually raised my hand on a um clubhouse Woo, welcome so, <laughs> thank you um so mine is more of a question um i am a licensed um social worker but i also have my own mental health needs as well and mine is coming from a more personal um a personal lens so i have been diagnosed with bipolar 2 and um my question is how do i know that it's bipolar 2 or if it's more ADHD symptoms. I know that there are a lot of um, overlapping, so I would like to know like how how psychiatrists determine that. So uh, here, here's what I'm gonna get on my soapbox to, to start. I think bipolar two is a useless concept, relatively speaking. Um, and I don't, I, I make literally zero use of it in my life and practice. Um, so originally the idea was we had manic depressive illness and manic depressive illness was in dsm-3 and eventually got renamed um bipolar disorder because i don't even know the, the history of this bipolar 2 was this idea that there was this different subtype that never had frank full-blown mania and this was somehow important because it would let us know what to do differently so it's a research essentially hypothesis that there is a difference that's important between someone who has full-blown mania, whatever that is, and hypomania, whatever that is. And there are definitions for those things being different. My contention is, in my work as a psychiatrist, that difference is unimportant. Because the question for me is bipolar, not bipolar. And we'll get to how that is differentiated from other things in just a second. But I think bipolar, not bipolar matters bipolar spectrum is nonsense in that the actual important question answer is bipolar not bipolar and that's because the treatment is different for bipolar depression particularly which is where most people with bipolar disorder spend most of their lives if we're talking about a mood state and whether they've ever had any mania is what matters in treating that depression so 
if you want to be helpful to someone, you have to know what's going to help. And I think what Bipolar 2 did was confuse people endlessly into thinking there was an important thing that's not very important. Because at the end of the day, bipolar depression turns out to be treated quite differently than unipolar depression. And when I say that, I mean zero antidepressant oral medications work in bipolar disorder as far as we know. That's from the STEP BD trial. With the asterisk of a lanzapine-fluoxetine combination in bipolar depression. And why Prozac combined with Zyprexa should work when it does not work on its own, I cannot answer. I just know that's what the evidence says. So how do you how do you tell the difference between one symptom and another? And how do psychiatrists do it? Oh, I can answer how I do it. If you're having symptoms of mania, the easiest way to do this is to have the Young Mania Rating Scale at your disposal and either use it or be very familiar with what's on it. Because if something, someone is having one symptom of mania, it is not a symptom of mania unless they have enough other symptoms of mania to count as mania. It is a manic, not manic question. So one symptom of mania is not mania. Right? Uh, grandiosity is either, you know, you're, you're, you could be grandiose for many reasons. If you're not also not sleeping, irritable, impulsive, talking too much, etc., 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 then it's not mania. So if you're having symptoms of something, it is a symptom of an episodic thing, which bipolar disorder is episodic by definition. Episodes sometimes, not episodes other times. And if it's a symptom of inattention versus a symptom of poor concentration, right, ADHD versus, say, depression or inattentiveness due to mania, you're going to have the other stuff too. And so it's a little bit like SantaCon, right? I'm wearing this, like, hat, right? And it's not a Santa hat, and you can tell that because it's not red. But I'm also not Santa for a bunch of other reasons. Like, I'm not wearing, I'm not as fat as I would be if I were Santa, etc. So you have to have this whole constellation of things to be Santa. And just wearing a Santa hat doesn't make you Santa. So just being inattentive doesn't make it a mania symptom. It may, if you have a state, a, tra- a trait-based problem, like ADHD is a problem more or less all the time always have a brain that is an ADHD brain. It is not sometimes an ADHD brain and sometimes not an ADHD brain. And that's how I think of it. Not specifically answering your question, any kind of medical advice, but that's how I think. Is this a state or a trait? Are we in a state, which means a bunch of stuff is true at once or not? And I wanted to, to jump in quickly. Oh, and sorry, Dr. Carlin, do you want to do that? Do you want to jump in? Oh, yeah, I was just going to um, kind of jump in and, and say that, um, you know, you can definitely have both. And that one of the things that sometimes comes up is, you know, ADHD medications are oftentimes the stimulant medications, um, which sometimes people will say, oh, you can't have those because you're bipolar and they'll make you manic and all that. Um, and the reality is that, you you know, with careful uh, pharmacology and monitoring and stuff, you can, you know, it can be on both. And they're, you know, they're both very treatable things. Um, and so just to kind of keep that in mind and I think one of the things with bipolar is that 
there's really no such thing as like the perfect regimen. Like most of the patients that I work with who have bipolar, it's like a moving target. Like we have to change the meds from time to time and, you know, different seasons and things like that. Um, And so I think that, you know, if somebody's on an ADHD med and gets floridly manic, well, maybe that's not the time they're going to be taking the stimulant, but there may be other times in their illness where it's perfectly appropriate. So that's why it's really important to work with um, a psychiatrist who's comfortable um, kind of not just kind of getting stuck in one sort of medication path indefinitely. It's very dynamic. Um, excuse me. Oh, sorry. We're, we're going in PTR order. Hey. Uh, and I wanted to real quickly Go just ahead, add Vic. on there to, because I think we've touched on this. Um, very rarely do we have one pure diagnosis and I think that one of the things you know I worked for a company or I worked with the cabs clinic for a little while mostly in my residency just touching base them but it's the center for bipolar youth and you know they spend a lot of time undiagnosing or diagnosing bipolar but yes also ADHD or but yes also personality struggles and that's that's yep. the thing it's so important to, to, to you know and this is why when people say you can't use a stimulant to treat ADHD if you have bipolar that's not true at all I do it all the time but I want to have the bipolar part of it the mania and the depression under control first so it's it, it is a lot more nuanced to it and I think that's what's what's really important um, and I also want to agree with, with Owen that it's a constellation you know you, you don't have bipolar because you talk fast otherwise I would be definitely d- diagnosed and you don't have it because you have a lot of extra energy or because you like to do a lot of things all the time and that's your personality um, and I have so many patients who have come in and they said oh I'm bipolar too because my doctor says I'm hypomanic and it guys ask them what that means and it means I'm always doing stuff I'm always productive I'm always on the go I'm always talking faster faster than other people I'm thinking real quickly but they don't have depressive episodes or they don't have anything else along the mania uh, spectrum and it's not it's not bipolar that's why I agree a lot with, with Owen I think the bipolar 2 diagnosis has really made things extra yeah, it's diagnostically insufficient, and this is another thing we get into is people calling depression sadness or truncating the term, right? People like to kind of take the pop psychology of it and use like a, a diagnosis as an adjective, but mania is not just a, even increased mood. Sometimes it's a, a, a level of goal, it's goal-directed behavior. It's uh, risking it. It's a bunch of different things that we can't collapse into an adjective, so beautiful, rich clinical discussion here. With, I want to give a little bit of a proviso here. We are not giving medical advice. This is psychoeducation for your entertainment and information, not for diagnostic stuff. So Jessica, I hope that was helpful. That was helpful. I appreciate it. Thank you so awesome. much, everyone. All right. So we, when people are done speaking and getting their questions answered, we're going to move them back to the audience. I have to say, that the, the metaphor for who is and is not Santa is my favorite differential diagnosis metaphor, I think, since grad school. Um, I have to say, right, Roshanik? Yeah, that was pretty good. Okay, let's move right on to our next questioner. Actually, before that, I lied. Uh, if you want to ask a question, feel free to raise your hand. I'd love to see your social media connection, your Instagram, your Twitter, and your bio. Or if you want to put your uh, some kind of information in your bio to show that you're not going to troll. Or if you're going to troll, you can still write a fake question in there and troll us anyway. You'll get one over on us. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but yes, without further ado, Gigi, go Don't for it. Don't give them ideas. What? What, Roshnik? <laughs> 
I said, don't give them ideas. No, I mean, if you're going to troll, listen, put some work ethic into it and maybe fill out a profile. You could still troll, right? I'm just I'm just kidding here. All right, Gigi, what's up? Uh, excuse me. Can I ask one question to you guys? Um, is it related? We're trying to go in PTR order, so you are right after Luca. If you want to send a question in the back channel, you're welcome to do that, too. Gigi, you're next. What's up? Hello. I am, uh, uh, my name is Jihan. I'm 19 years old. I'm studying psychology in uni, um, and I have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Uh, so, like, I know a lot about this experience. It's hell, but, yeah, first of all, I want to actually... Uh, Add something to what Jessica asked about the ADHD and the bipolar. How do you tell the difference? So what I can say from my research is that ADHD is a neurological difference that you're born with. It's not a disorder or a mood disturbance. So it starts early on. The symptoms, you can notice it when you're in early childhood. But bipolar's onset is typically in teenage years. And that's, that's according to an MD that I've seen on YouTube. And, uh, and she also said that bipolar can make, what, what the onset of bipolar can make ADHD symptoms worse. So yeah, these, these are, are some of the differences. But yeah, uh, one of the myths I want to address about bipolar disorder is that people think that mania is always good. They think the opposite of depression is happiness. Uh, That's not true. So the other that? pole of depression is elevation. And elevation is not necessarily good just because it's 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 the polar of the negative part. Doesn't mean it's good. So let's let's talk economics. For example, inflation is not always good. <laughs> so mania doesn't always feel good. It can feel good in the beginning, but it can spiral out of control and turn into irritability, rage, impulsivity. It's not happiness. It's an elevation. Also, uh, I've read in uh, the. Uh, the frequency of manic and depressive episodes can do some form of damage to the brain. Um, so yeah, that's that's all uh, I wanted to add here. And also, I like in my own experience, I I I'm thinking about researching. There's researching about the the link between low self-esteem and and the the symptoms of mania because I've seen that my symptoms of bipolar have improved a lot with improving my self-esteem. I'm Johanna Dunn. Thank you, guys. I wanted to just say, I'm sure Owen, you know, would, would jump in. That, you know, what, once you've seen true mania, and it's really great. I know, Owen, you, you worked in a high-throughput emergency room, and I've and down at Western Psych, we worked at, you know, worked in a high-throughput emergency room where we'd see several hundred patients. Uh, you know, I can't remember, actually several thousand patients in a year because we are the, the emergency room that is a funnel for the whole area. When you see flagrant mania you all of a sudden the idea of hypomania starts to disappear pretty quickly and i think you said it very well and thanks for sharing by the way i think it's really awesome that you're willing to actually reach out and 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 let us you know hear about your story and the reality is mania is almost never pretty it you know it can be super happy it can be super elated it can be super angry but it's almost never rational or reasonable if mania is a blast wait a minute yeah yeah um, one of the things about the, uh, the, the bipolar, so the other, I think most important myth is the myth of this person has good insight or this person has bad insight as opposed to insight is a fluctuating quality. It is a symptom in and of itself, the lack thereof. And nobody with bipolar disorder has good insight or bad insight. They have insight that is at the mercy of their level of unwellness. 
and usually twisted by it as well, and so that's what makes it so interesting. One of the most bizarre experiences of my life was I, I was sitting down with my program director as a psychiatry resident, and he was telling me some really negative feedback, like, you know, there seems to be a delta in your performance, and I, I later understood that you know, he was trying to tell me I wasn't doing well. And either, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he knew what was going on, but, I, you know, HR kind of can't. And I wrote an eight-page email after that message. And I looked at it and I said, this seems very long. It seems too long. I'm not going to send it. I said all these really important things and I laid out my points really clearly. There are subsections and bullets and, huh, but it seems really long. And then, and then I, you know, went and, 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 uh, two days later, it's like, oh, wait, hold on. I am more impulsive, grandiose, hyperverbal, haven't needed to sleep too much. Uh oh. So I, I'm a psychiatrist and I was able to look at the most hyperverbal email you could possibly write eight pages of just endlessness and not be able to tell what is glaringly obvious to even myself several days later, which is this is a symptom. And it's that ability to have a blind spot in looking at oneself that is so remarkable. You can know everything and still not be able to see yourself in the mirror. So this quality of anisognosia, the inability to see oneself as unwell we see in strokes and it's super obvious in strokes like you have a part of the brain stroked out and it means your arm is paralyzed but you'll also deny that your arm is paralyzed there's nothing wrong with my arm i made it do that and we all realize when it's a huge hunk of your brain gone well there's a reason for that it's a neurological problem the part of your brain that can answer this question is gone and the ability to have that come and go transiently that's what bipolar disorder does to insight and it can be really tragic and frustrating for the rest of us because we will say things like why can't you see and that question misses the point that the inability to see is the symptom and i wanted to just for saying this thank you oh i was gonna say Gigi, the, the, the other thing i wanted to say that that owen's really hitting on is just how impairing it is. And and the reality is, this is one of those things about hypomania. You know, it, and I always say in my own practice, if you're not struggling, you're not my problem. It's people are always saying with psych to psychiatrists, like, oh, you must be diagnosing everybody that you meet. And I'm like, well, if you're functional, uh, not my problem. So I think the reality is, you know, I know a lot of people who would be quote unquote hyperman, you know, hypomanic all the time, but they're highly functional. When and when Owen says you just lose function in these 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 severe manias, and that's when we see them, and that's what really differentiates it so much in my mind. But I believe like early intervention can actually prevent disasters because bipolar tends to get worse with time. The Kenzen so, effect. Yes, and I'm actually I, for a minute one of the most frustrating experiences of my life. Um, I'm I'm part of a, a study group that worked on a project where we looked at duration of untreated psychosis and duration of mania from every first episode psychosis, both effective and non-effective, in the world. There were over 600 papers and tons of unpublished data, and the long and short of it is, untreated mania leads to more worse mania later on. 
untreated psychosis leads to more worse psychosis. And frankly, the best thing that can happen to you as someone with bipolar disorder is to have an abrupt onset of severe mania so nobody misses what they're dealing with. That's so true. I, I, for me, like for my first manic episode, it was really pure. But as, as I, as I progressed in time, what happened is that I actually started uh, without, without, without adequate treatment. I started hallucinating at some point. So yeah, early intervention is the way to go. Which is true of all things. I mean, borderline personalities, yeah. any of these things. Absolutely, was going to throw that in there. I mean, it just it that's we need better screening for these things, and parents, you know, can can see this stuff and know what to look for. Gigi, thank you so much for asking that. I hope that that really helped to answer your question. It sounded like it was pretty validating too to hear all that. Uh, excuse me, so sorry. Uh, can I share? Hey, my we're, we're actually doing it, uh, PTR order, so you will be after Lena. We're asking questions in order here. Uh, speaking of getting to the questions here. Uh, I want to go now to David. Thank you so much for your patience in waiting uh, to ask a question here about bipolar disorder or share a myth. Are you still with us, David? Hi, I'm still here. Awesome. Perfect. What is your question for the panel or observation about bipolar disorder? So my daughter, she's 13, has been diagnosed bipolar for you know, a bunch of years now. We've been struggling with it for quite a while. Uh, she's also oppositional defiant, which is a lovely combo. But I, what really keyed me to come on stage is when somebody said that this is really a lot to do with circadian rhythm and sleep. That was Owen, circadian rhythms, yes. Yeah, because she does not sleep. It wasn't always this way. I think it's gotten worse, but she cannot sleep. It's like she has the worst insomnia. She'll stay up all night, sometimes for two nights. Her sleep is so backwards, upside down, crazy. It's It's really awful and i don't know what we can what, so that's a great observation but what can we do about it great question complex answer not to your daughter's situation because she's not a patient but okay so um decreased sleep drive the need to sleep is a symptom of mania decreased sleep is a trigger for mania and when you sleep is crucially important it turns out that the thing that regulates all this is a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. To get nerdy for a second, but there's a point. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is located right above the optic chiasm in your brain. So you have eyes, which are actually part of the nervous system. They have a nerve coming off the back of them, which is big and thick. It goes back through your skull into your brain, and they meet at a point, and then cross over, and the nerve fibers shoot to the back of your head, which is where you process visual information. Right above that spot is the clock in your brain that tells you when it's day and when it's night. And blue wavelength light, 460 nanometers to be specific, is the signal to these nerves. And you have special photoreceptors in your eye that are not rods or, or cones that only see this wavelength of light. And that is how your brain tells if it's day or night. And that is what regulates when you're awake and when you're asleep. And here's the head fucky part. If you put on glasses made for lasers that block 460 nanometer light, they're yellow, you can get them on Amazon. I can find the link and tweet it out. And you're acutely manic and you put these glasses in a research study on someone, or on a group of people, versus placebo glasses. And you make them wear them 14 hours a day, which we call virtual darkness treatment. So as far as your brain is concerned, 
there is no daylight. You have a 70% remission of mania in one week in a hospital setting. Take a minute. Mic drop. Right. So that is, that was the proof to me that you have this crucial sunlight day night part as the thing. It also turns out there's a peak onset in the year of symptoms of bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And that is the second and third week of October. And there's another peak in the spring. And in the second week of October, second and third weeks, Vint, do you know what's happening? Daylight savings time. Right. And, and what's happening to the length of the days then? Right. I mean, right. It's changing Short. the circadian rhythm in a totally artificial way, shortening it in one case and lengthening it in and another. That is also in parts of the world that don't have daylight savings time. Still true because the delta, the rate of change, it's actually the calculus equation that looks at the rate of diminution of daylight. So the days are getting shorter fastest. And the speed of change is what matters. Right, I, uh, I just changed day. my... If, if people um, pull to refresh, um, PTR, I just changed my profile picture to uh, these uh, these orange blue light blocking glasses. And we actually would, you know, when people were doing a lot of in-person, we would stock them in our office. They're about $10 or so on Amazon. Uh, well, well worth it for anyone with any kind of bipolar circadian type stuff or just wanting to have virtual darkness at night so the answer to what what to do what to do about sleep is a see a psychiatrist b see a sleep medicine doctor if the psychiatrist can't figure it out and have them work together because there are other reasons to not sleep (laughs) narcolepsy exists um you know and the inability to sleep narcolepsy can can be a problem um because it's not just sleeping during the daytime it's an autoimmune attack on hypocretin cells etc but getting day night daylight and 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 nighttime right is what you need to do and the way you do that practically is you get up the same time every day if people don't listen to anything else i say tonight or anybody says if you take away one thing from this whole conversation getting up at the same time every day and getting some daylight in your face at that time or, or light box if it's winter or whatever, is the most important thing you can do to not lead an effed up life as someone with bipolar disorder followed shortly thereafter by not being addicted to alcohol or other drugs. And, and C is to advocate for getting rid of daylight savings time, which is something I think we all want to consider doing. And, and E is people with bipolar disorder in the non-myth category really shouldn't be doing shift work in a way. I mean, that's that's one of the things that, that you also have to think about. Agree, agree. I've actually, so in, in, in residency training, this is a big deal. And I'm actually, you know, advocating for someone right now who is having their program. Try to force them to do overnight call. They have bipolar disorder. That is poison. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, if you're going to get home at night for anybody, it's actually a, a fine idea to put on those blue light blocking sunglasses when dusk happens and it is dark and wear them and you will go to sleep easier. That works for everybody. It is especially helpful if you have bipolar disorder. It's also important to set your phones and your electronic devices to a night shift if you've got it, which does essentially the same thing. Not quite as robustly. Uh, unfortunately, I know I, I agree, but it, it is better than nothing. 
It is better than like I my I have a I have a hypothesis actually about like nights out drinking essentially that are like really problematic for people with bipolar. I think it's actually staying up later and just randomly and then sleeping in is probably more chaos inducing than anything you're actually doing during that time. But that is a pet uh, pet theory. It is not scientific. Fact. It'd be fascinating to test that out. I mean, I think this speaks also to the importance of teens having great rapports with their psychiatrist and or therapist because a lot of these suggestions are eminently doable and but you know unfortunately rely on listening to an adult telling you to you know cherish and develop routine right and so if it's from someone who they don't see as carrying their best interest it's like oh of course i could do that or it's just the same old same old no this is something that literally rewires your biochemistry and brain structure over time and I, I just hope that more teens get hooked up with therapists that really they feel listened to them and things like that because I know I mean that that can make it or break it I mean there's some very doable impl implementable solutions here those blue light blocking glasses Dr. Carlene has check them out everybody I mean this is stuff that people can do immediately if they if they hear it and this you know psychoeducation stuff is actually shared so I think this is a good time for a room reset I don't do as good a robot voice as what Owen has, guys. I'm sorry. He's got a new robot that reminds us when to do a room reset. Do you have that thing we primed have, up? Yeah, I haven't connected it, but I'm going to impersonate it. Okay, do it. We have detected the conditions for a room reset. I like that. You know, we've That's got Owen. Good. That's not bad. Yeah, I mean, who needs how when we've got Owen? Owen probably knows more than that computer anyway from... 2001 space odyssey right yeah hey everyone you're here in the sphere club with a monday night mental health myth rooms here and we are focusing on bipolar disorder we are deconstructing myths about this uh mental health disorder and condition that affects millions of people this is such a necessary topic it is not borderline personality disorder it is not just feeling happy and then sad throughout the day okay it is a, a condition that we are accepting questions on we have a a wonderful panel here we're actually being joined now by nitty who's joining us welcome to the stage nitty it's good to see you feel free to answer a question as it comes up here if you have something to add about bipolar disorder and the interactions with trauma which are myriad because it's super traumatized yes and against your will among the many many other things that can happen yes oh my goodness yeah when well, i when i was just Go ahead, Finch, Jeremy, really quick. Jeremy, you, you, you did define the bipolar as we define it in Pittsburgh, just so you know. Mad one minute, happy the next, just so you know about that. Oh, great. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm glad I was able to play into that stereotype a little bit. I'm, a, I'm, go I'm actually going to shy away from defining it and just let it happen through the questions. How's that sound to people? I think that's some great Socratic priming dialogue. I, I love that. Okay, Hugh, thank you so much for waiting for your question here. Please feel free to share it, and our panel will answer or comment. Yeah, um, I was just... Uh, sorry, I'm muting. Um, I was just curious um, if they could give like a broad overview of exactly what bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 are in terms of signs and symptoms and etc if you were to see like just a i guess a generalization or a checklist or something like that um just like what is it basically um i mean i have an i know what it is but i'm just right. curious to hear. yeah you could so go ahead Owen. With it is i can do that and and they do that in residency training and they do that in textbooks and nobody seems to understand it anyway so it like 
crucial elements, and the audience and, and, and panel can say what they think about these, but I think the crucial elements are episodic versus non-episodic. Does this happen sometimes and other things happen other times? Uh, right, episodic. So if we're talking about days to weeks problems that happen sometimes and not others, then maybe we're talking about bipolar disorder. Similar. What do you mean when you say problems? Like, can you like? Can, I, but, but that's yeah. what I'm saying. I'm trying not to answer that question specifically because if you don't get that we're talking about something that happens on the time scale of days to weeks to months, you'll get confused. So if it's happening minute to minute, hour to hour, hours to days, on in almost all cases, we're not talking about bipolar disorder. It doesn't matter what you're describing. It's not bipolar disorder if this time scale at which the problems, whatever they are, is happening is minutes to hours or hours to days. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. And I, well, I, and I, wanna, I really want to emphasize that, too, is, is, you know, there's something even called rapid cycling. And if you look at that, that's a few times a year. We're talking two or three times a year, it's rapid cycling, not every other day or every hour or every 15 minutes. And if you see, and, and I, when I'm in my practice and I'm working with patients, one of the things I want to know, and I, I think Owen maybe would be, was alluding to this, I want to know, are you different for a specific period of time and significantly different, like three or four days. And then all of a sudden, you're kind of back to where you were, maybe depressed, maybe whatever. But it's this weird, I wasn't me for a while, and that happens, and it comes and goes. Maybe I was more happy for three or four days. The other thing I'm really always looking for, and is, this may be too specific, but Owen also mentioned it, I'm really looking for issues with sleep, because without issues for sleep, I'm very dubious of, of bipolar disorder. Yeah, this is Nitty. Um, I'll, I'll chime in here. Uh, you know, Hugh, I know that um, you're kind of asking about what are some of the things that you would experience over the course of those, you know, timeframes that Owen and Vint are referencing. Uh, bipolar disorder is typically characterized with manic or hypomanic episodes and then depressive episodes. So that means that there is like elevated mood. Um, sometimes there's feelings of grandiosity. So feeling like you're on top of the world or that you're really super duper important. Um, you know, there can be uh, like flight of ideas, meaning that there's a ton of different thoughts that come and uh, they, they all come out at similar times, right? It's just a, a rush of thoughts that come through. And then the depressive episodes are typically marked by pretty, pretty deep depressive uh, depression, right? So difficulties with uh, sleep and appetite and loss of interest and activities and, and so this vacillates and kind of goes back and forth uh, between episodes like Owen and Vint are talking about for extended days um, at a time, but that's typically the experience. And there's two different types of bipolar disorder but you know Owen you know how I feel about the DSM I think everybody on the stage knows how and, I and we've already said what we feel about bipolar too just so you know don't love it don't love it right Right, because it's confusing, right? So bipolar 2, that's where this idea of hypomania comes into play, where it's like you're you're just under the cusp of being actually full-blown manic, but it's still enough of a ma of manic symptoms, the <coughs> elevated mood, the grandiosity, the impulsivity, the things I just mentioned, just not quite at the same level. So that's where everyone is saying it gets really confusing because it's hard to distinguish. Well, but there's also the people who have both manic and depressive symptoms in the same episode, right? Mixed, yeah, mixed episodes. We worry a lot about that, actually. 
which way it's confusing. More often than not, okay? So if someone's having, like, symptoms of, uh, you know, they're having problems. I really like the term problems, the deep medicalized stuff. If you're feeling bad and feeling, and, and feeling, you can feel depressed and, and up and agitated and full of energy at the same time. You're feeling bad, but uh, energized bad, edgy bad, awful, just out of your skin bad. Like or, Red Bull and alcohol bad. Red Bull and alcohol, right. Bipolar disorder does that on the regular. I think it's more the rule than the exception. And it's the highly dangerous time in bipolar disorder. And I don't, we haven't actually mentioned it, but we did mention that, that, you know, it's a very prevalent illness. It's also one of the highest illnesses that results in suicide. So it's, it's these times of mixed uh, episodes where you really have the energy and the drive and are angry and upset. That's what we worry about a lot in psychiatry, certainly. So I just want to highlight, we've gotten lots of questions about what it is. And only one question about what to do and it was about sleeping less far and i love that because it hasn't been medication questions we'll talk about medications if you want to hear about it but what it is and what it's not i think is the most important thing to understand for folks and and for us as professionals um and i hope we've we've kind of made some things clear and maybe we can go to hugh next and and uh, i'll let jeremy do the mc because he's better at that than me no you're great i think hugh we just answered your question right Yes. Uh, Perfect. Yeah, thank you. It was thank very you. Uh, clear. Thank you so much for asking it. All right, Luca, you seem very familiar. I think we've shared a stage before. Yes. Welcome. 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 Hey, everyone. Hi. Hi, Owen. And Dr. Rosnack. Jeremy. Good to see you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to share a couple of things about which I think are myths for bipolar. Um, one is that there has to be mania or even clear hypomania bipolar used to be as as you were saying on manic depressive illness and it used to only be characterized by severe recurrent episodes of depression but they had to be severe and they were usually um they were usually quite abrupt onsets and they might be a sort of agitated or nervous depression not really mixed symptoms, but a nervous depression. And that was enough for a diagnosis of manic depression, depressive illness. Now the guy who did this cohort, his name was Jules Oggs, and he has the longest running cohort of bi- bipolar patients. He was a, uh, he still is, he's probably like a hundred years old. He's a psychiatrist in Switzerland. And he was the, he was the reason why they changed the uh, diagnosed the, the name of it to bipolar in 1980. But actually his cohort, he realized he, he had actually misread the data and that you didn't need, you know, four days for hypomania or, or a week for, um, for mania. And in, in, in the, um, the DSM-5, he actually brought his new research to the working group on bipolar and he said, hey, I was actually wrong. All you need is severe recurrent episodes of depression. And what happened, I, one of my mates was on, was on the group. And what happened inside the group is they said, well, if, if we use those for the diagnostic criteria of bipolar or manic depression, we will be diagnosing a lot more. And that would be a very unpopular thing. So let's not do it. 
And in that moment, my mate, he just, he resigned from the working group for bipolar. He said, this has become a political decision and not a scientific one. So I think an important, an important myth to, is that you have to have a clear manic or even a clear hypomanic. And I agree, hypomanic's kind of ridiculous. It's like, as long as you're not hospitalized, like what, come on, what are the criteria for being hospitalized, you know? So I think one of the myths is... in your area. Exactly. So I think um, just to keep in mind, you know, the average time from the first contact with mental health to an accurate diagnosis of bipolar is still 10 years. They're still being treated under the wrong diagnosis for an average of 10 years because it's, it's because they don't realize it could just be a severe, abrupt episodic depression without mania or hypomania and the original, the original title of the jameson and goodwin book with only textbook i've read in my career as a psychiatrist practically is um is manic depressive illness and recurrent depression and so there is something about recurrent depression that's different from less recurrent depression and what luca brings up is such an important point empiricism is how we need to get to our understanding of things and anything we're saying could be wrong in fact most of it will prove to be we just don't know which half um the problem with the the diagnosing more people versus diagnosing less people with bipolar disorder one of the problems is it's so easy to make a, a lazy bipolar disorder diagnosis and it's so self-reinforcing and i'll i'll illustrate it with one simple example i come in to a doctor's office and i get diagnosed with bipolar disorder because i'm very depressed and they give me seroquel and it works and then i never have another manic episode my bipolar disorder has been cured according to the person prescribing the seroquel and you're not depressed at all well i mean i may be depressed many many times again that, that, that's never have another exactly. manic episode Right. If you never have another manic episode, your psychiatrist feels very good about themselves because they cured your bipolar disorder. And the same is true with any any medication given for bipolar disorder. If you don't have bipolar disorder, you will never have another manic episode in the care of that person or not in their care. But you think you're doing a good job by prescribing lithium or anything else because in the absence of, of recurrent mania, you've done your job, right? It doesn't matter how much the person is suffering from depression. And this is why misdiagnosis, and and so much of this is in the history, because almost everything that happens in our patients' lives wasn't in our office, and we don't get to well, see. We and didn't it also used to be that when it was manic depression, that it had to be inherited, and that you could only give lithium. Do you remember those days? So, so there is there. I mean, there is a phenotype, um, and when we say that for the audience, we mean um, there is a, a cohort of people who get a lot better with lithium specifically absolutely and lithium which is by the way the third element on the periodic table that's it is for some people a relatively speaking miraculously effective treatment for bipolar disorder and it is highly underutilized because people are afraid of it and many doctors don't know how to prescribe it because it's a little bit more complicated than prescribing Seroquel or Cyprexa or Abilify, heaven forbid. But if you have bipolar disorder, 
And actually, in, in, to speak to Luca's point, in people discharged from psychiatric hospitals with a major depressive disorder diagnosis, if they are discharged on lithium, their chance, not bipolar disorder, lithium, MDD only, they're 50% less likely to be readmitted. And less likely to kill themselves. And, and less likely to kill themselves by, by some amount. And when antidepressants are the prescribed medication, and like, you know, I don't love that this is true, but it is, in a million patients in the Netherlands, they looked. And if you're discharged from a hospital with a major depressive disorder diagnosis on an antidepressant as your medication, you're 10% more likely to come back. I just want to add in, though, that the thing about the anti-suicidals is actually it's now recognized, too, in, in, quite, in, in several studies. And this is why we actually consider it as an adjunct for certain types of depression now in actually having anti-suicidal properties. It seems to be very effective in that particular area. But it's not pixie dust. And we'll get to that. So well, oftentimes it's prescribed in borderline person. Yeah. So like it yeah. is pixie dust. It I know. Just- Nothing is, unfortunately. <laughs> for, for people with severe mood disorders. Uh, Jeremy, handing it off to you. Thank you. Carling, did you want to say something or were you just applauding? I was just applauding. Yay. Okay. Thank you, Luca. That was some wonderful food for thought and I really enjoy your voice. All right, William, let's toss it off to you. I like your, your PTR, I like your photo here. Are you here with us? You have a question for us, William? I am. I wanted to say that many, many years ago, this is an excellent room. Many years ago, I read. Uh, K. Redfield Jameson's book, Touched with Fire, Manic Depressive Illness and uh, Artistic Temperament. Great book for anybody who's looking into that, mm-hmm. how that relates to creativity. I wanted to see about the, how you distinguish, because it seems like that you were talking about earlier, um, Dr. Owen, about this, this uh, episodic nature of the, of the bipolar. And so that that's a really, really important distinguishing characteristic. Um, also, it seems to me that we want to say something about the kind of swinging of energies, the emotional highs and emotional lows. Is that are those kind of the two main ones we want to focus in on? And and, and and then my second part of my question is like, how do we distinguish that between like patterns we simply learned to use as coping strategies in childhood, right? Like. Uh, seeking too much attention um, versus like completely isolating ourselves, right? And how do you kind of look and distinguish those between like purely emotional problems and then like the chemical uh, nature of the uh, quote unquote um, imbalance or disorder? Hopefully, and that's being lived, but um, there you can have plenty of problems at the same time as bipolar. So you can have problems in your life, you can have other psychiatric problems, you can have other life problems. Are they happening at the same time as the symptoms of a depressive episode or a manic episode? Yes, no. Um, if they're happening at the same time as all those other things, um, is this person's being a jerk to me? Are they also not sleeping, talking about how great they are, talking really fast, etc., uh, etc.? Et Do they meet criteria? And, and for me, it's you have to have all, all the things, practically. Not one of them, not two of them. Not, not, you, have to, you have to have the symptoms of mania 
together. And this is where like the, the concept of hypomania is, is sort of kind of helpful. It can be really mild. I had a school teacher once who saw me and he said, well, I become, you know, I flirt with the parents of other students in, in the class. And she never does that at other times. And that was her version of hypersexuality. Super, super, super subtle. Like she was a little flirty versus not a little flirty. But it was in the context of not sleeping, talking too much, being more creative, starting lots of projects, etc., etc., etc. So she had all the things at a really mild level, and they got super severe depressions at other times that didn't respond to anything else. And it was all the things happening in the context that mattered. So, William, to answer your question, is the person having those emotional difficulties more during a period of time where they have the other symptoms? Yes, no. Because people with bipolar disorder can have problems when they're not in a mood state also with their emotions and feelings. And the swinging of them, there's a concept uh, I call border polar, which is you know borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder at the same time. And my illustration of this is a Ferris wheel bolted on a roller coaster. The Ferris wheel is the personality swings over minutes to hours, hours to days, and the longer ebbs and flows over the course of years, months, etc. That's by sir. So, so yeah, I'm gonna give an example. That thank you so much for that. So, see if you can see if you could distinguish it. Okay, someone who like say uh, the pandemic has kind of driven them apart. They experience depression, and they've been they dealt with major depression. They they're taking the medication, and they're and they're not. They haven't spoken to anyone of their parents because that that you know in their family because that's kind of just been a rift that's created throughout the pandemic. And then that person is all of a sudden says, "Oh my god, I love you. I, I missed you. I love you." And then the next day, it's back to like, "I hate you. Fuck you." Um, is that is that when someone calls that bipolar? Is that a mixed mischaracterization or a weapon? So uh, I'm guessing I know what Vin would say, but when they you need more information, <laughs> yeah. right? it may be that that's highly labile mood in the context of has the person also not been sleeping enough? Have they also been like spending all their money on, you know, 900 different microphones for their new podcast empire? <laughs> Are they also... Um, writing three books. Did they also, you know, call up every person in their phone and tell them they love them at the same time as they're telling that person that thing? Is it all together? And you don't have access to that information all the time. So I can't say. I can't say if all those other things were happening and then I'll hand it off to you. No, I just wanted to, I was curious as to what you thought I would say about that. Um, the, the question is like, you know, is that the only thing that you're worried about? Is that the only data point you have? Right. But that doesn't sound like. That sounds like a person who's having like problems with their feelings in the context of like tremendous stress, and they're doing something out of the ordinary. And you're like, why are they doing something so out of the ordinary? And- <laughs> so, so that's exactly right. And then I want to. I want to. Thanks. I want to jump on that because the reality is, I kind of went through this weird cycle. Being that I was so oriented towards um, personality disorder and bipolar disorder, right? I mean, sorry, and borderline personality disorder, I kind of got this almost this feeling like there was way too much diagnosis of bipolar disorder, and and I got almost insensitive to the to the nature of the bipolar, and I had to actually learn 
it as well in, in some ways. I have a perfect patient who is so clearly meets criteria for borderline personality disorder, but about once every couple of years would go off the rails. And even their normal stuff that I would expect, their normal emotional uh, lability or, 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 or happy, sad, which would go back and forth day to day, uh, all of a sudden they would get a little bit more hypersexual, or they would get a little bit more uh, risk-taking, or do things that actually would start getting them into trouble in a way that was very different than the yep. state of the, board, of the borderline personality disorder stuff, I was saying. And it was clear this is somebody who had both, bipolar disorder as well as borderline personality disorder, and we've now worked on that and are treating it as such, and, and they're doing a lot better. I remember when I first met Carlene, she was working with a young woman who had a really big you know, self-injury and didn't know who she was, clearly borderline personality disorder, and then had this period of time where she was doing great. <laughs> Nothing was wrong. She, and, and like the borderline symptoms seemed to go away and unfortunately came with it what were symptoms of, of mania and pressured speech and drinking sleep and she had her first onset of, of mania and then was you know treated with with medication for that which was wildly effective and um and you know has been doing really well in her adult life i'll point out but it's you know you have to be on the lookout for when the real thing shows up at your door because then there are actual important decisions you have to make that aren't just dismissing someone's mood. And maybe Carlene can say a little bit more about that generically. Yeah, I don't know exactly which case you're referring to here. Um, but no, I mean, I think that you can have like a preconceived notion like, oh, this is someone with personality disorder, um, particularly since like oh, I would get as a personality disorder specialist, a lot of people who, you know, have that diagnosis, but then like they can have a full-blown manic episode and we need to treat it as such. And I think keep that kind of open diagnostic mind. Um, and I think, Owen, as you mentioned, that border polar concept, right? That people can definitely sometimes have have both, right? Life, life is messy. <laughs> the diagnosis is definitely, definitely messy. Super duper good answers for that. Thank you. William, out. Thank you, William. Love when we have some uh, wonderfully uh, congruent answers there. They all inspire together. All right, Lena, we want to go to you next. How are you doing? Hi, uh, I'm good. Um, I want to, uh, to talk, but I'm, I'm not good in English language. But I think I, I wish you uh, understand me, okay? Uh, I can hear you so far. Uh? So far, so good. Okay, uh, I can't. Uh, I can't talk uh, uh, spontaneity because um, I have friends in this room. Okay, uh, but um, I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. Um, I will try to 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 understand me. Okay, uh, my friend uh, that had to uh, had a bipolar disorder. She is first. Uh, uh, suffer from a bad mood at the morning and uh, she was going to uh, to to a doctor and the doctor uh, diagnosed at first by depression uh, so uh, she takes sertraline okay for a long time and uh, until she take hypomania uh, she was any uh, she want to get suicide because she get anxiety and can't sleep and can't sleep uh, any so any very, uh, I can translate if you like, uh, Lena. If there's something, I speak your language. Okay, thank if you. If you guys allow me. Okay. Uh, so, uh, she gets um, 
يعني هي انا كنت بقول ان هي بتاخذ كان مرت بالسي سفر فور 3 3 ييرز اوف بايبور شي تيك صوديوم بالبريت يعني جيتين الويت يعني اوفر ويت شي تيك ديبريشن مور سو يعني شي going through very very doctors and until she يعني she met the doctor will diagnose and she get lamictal now her life is changed now she get a good life really but I'm talking I want to talk about my society it's very backward and they يعني they think she will never get married she will never get someone to want to to get relationship with with her she can't talk about that with anyone just her family and my society think she is crazy and bipolar persons is mood swing and they are not normal yeah Owen let's go so from what I'm hearing, you have a friend who yeah. had symptoms of bipolar disorder and a diagnosis. And it was yes, bipolar type 2. Yes. And the treatment worked. It was helpful. And now the question is, how could anyone understand this person as lovable and maybe yes. variable if they have bipolar disorder? And that's the, the problem you're bringing us, if I'm hearing that. Dr. Owen, if I, you know, if I can just give this, Please. she meant, uh, so it's a culture, it's like the stigma, so uh, she can correct me if, uh, you know, uh, but it's the stigma, I mean, I am from the same culture, or I grew up in there, so the stigma is so severe, especially for women who suffer from mental illness with this severity, so I, if I understood her well. Are we talking about? I'm sorry? Which country are we talking about? Which culture? Uh, so, I mean, Middle Eastern. So, Lena uh, is uh, from, from the Middle East. But where is Yes, yes, from the Middle East in general. Well, it is, it is a bit different, in, as I understand it, in, in Persian culture and in, in, in say, Kuwait, Iraq, etc. I, and I have colleagues and friends from different places. So, it will orient me a little bit if I know what part of... Okay, is a if you allow me to ask her, Lina, من نين أنت من أيو إذا بفيك تحكي؟ أنا من السودان. Okay, from Sudan. Sudan. Okay, and and so that is that problem you're having in in Sudanese culture is not unique to Sudanese culture, but it is, as I understand it, much worse. And I think one of the one of the difficulties with essentially misogyny and mental illness, like hating women uh, being okay, um, is that problems women women will have get more penalized than problems men might have. And so we can, we can you know, love women except in XYZ cases. And so what I'm gonna say will be, uh, I, I hope helpful. In for for anyone who has a problem like this, they have to negotiate both their internal world and what the external world's going to think. And one of the issues with having a mental illness like bipolar disorder is you can't always hide what's happening. 
and other people can know. And the ability of other people to judge you when they know a thing can be brutal. To start out and say some things that are just in my mind true. There is nothing wrong with someone who has this problem fundamentally. These are people who I have spent my life caring for and not for nothing being one of, right? It's we, not they. And the price to be paid when we force people to feel bad about themselves because we imagine the judgment of others is really the power of stigma. So I don't have a problem with you, but other people might, and they might think worse of me for thinking well of you as I boil it down. So the first thing I'll say is take the medicine that works for you if you're having this problem, if it works for you, because the amount of time you're going to have to spend explaining yourself is going to be much less if you work hard to keep yourself well or oneself well than if you don't. And there are going to be cases in which people knowing this about you won't be good. And to the degree that it's possible, find the people who are your people and who won't judge you so harshly. But keeping yourself well leaves you more time to think about that than think about how much you're going to be judged when you're having a hard time. And I'll let other people say things that may be more helpful than that, but you can tell me if that was at all useful to you. I can contribute here, Lena. Yes. Um, thank you so much, first of all, for sharing vulnerably. And I know I, I'm an Indian American. I come from a culture where uh, mental health is not talked about. And as a therapist and as somebody who has her own mental health struggles, um, you know, I, I think it's really important that we put education out there, right? Because I find that there's a lot of misconceptions that come with mental health. And uh, I know that for my family and for, you know, the people in my extended family who still live in India, uh, and granted, you know, I know Sudanese culture is different than Indian culture, but similar level of stigma, right? Where women are looked at as less worthy, not uh, not worthy of marriage, that they're a liability in terms of having children. And I think that the education is so, so important because I think a lot of people don't understand that you can live a very full, healthy life with management of all of these different conditions, right? There's people, you know, like Owen, uh, you know, people like like your friend Lena, right, who are able to function at a very high level because they're taking care of their mental health and well-being. And I think the proof is in the pudding, right, Where, which means that, you know, by by managing it and by helping people to understand that these are conditions that, uh, you know, have treatment that works, uh, I think that that helps a lot of people's worries and, and nerves about, you know, uh, what a relationship may, may look like. It helps them to understand that it's possible to have healthy 
relationships and it's possible to be incredibly successful. Some of the most successful in this world actually struggle with various mental health conditions, right? So, um, so yeah, that education is super important and that starts on an individual level. And I found that having the conversations with my closest family, with uh, extended family, with friends, that's where we have control and power. And so I would encourage your friend, of course, this isn't therapeutic advice, but, you know, just human to human, right? I would encourage your friend to kind of share more about her experience to the degree that it's safe to do so, um, so that others can see how far she's come and that she's able to live a full life. uh, And that that ultimately is going to show people that, you know, there's no need to stigmatize uh, mental health conditions. So I hope that that's helpful, Lena. And and this comes back, Lena, to something else that I think is really important is, is and Nidhi is, is, is highlighting this. As a doctor, you know, I, I really don't see a difference between mental health and physical health. And, no, and very few people seem to make a huge deal if somebody has high blood pressure or a huge deal if somebody has diabetes. I mean, you know, they're interested in stuff like that. But they make these huge deals about things like bipolar disorder or other. Stephen Fry, an incredible comedian in England, has been incredibly successful and has bipolar disorder. This is, it's not something that people should stigmatize it's only something that people do stigmatize thank you very much thank you for all of you welcome lena oh and yeah at a certain point um like in any any for anyone in any culture no one has the right to put you down for who you are or what you cope with anywhere and if they try, there may be limits on the degree to which you can tell them to go F themselves. But those limits are imposed by you and your own sense of uh, propriety, not by what they deserve. Because what they deserve is to go F off and let you live your life. I think if I may interject for a second, you know, what's really important and what's what here, especially in, in the Sphere Club, um, and uh, other mental health professionals are doing and the conversation around mental health is really starting to raise the awareness that there is a biological basis to these behaviors this is not something that i voluntarily i'm choosing to be like this i am not broken any more than if something else physiologically biologically is imbalanced in my body or my brain nobody like owen just said nobody dr owen Um, is going to blame you if your liver isn't working right, if your kidney isn't working right, if your heart isn't working right, if something's going on with your lungs. If anything, they have compassion and empathy. And yet, when you've got the same sort of imbalance in your brain, which expresses as behavior, it just, I think people find it frightening and mostly they do not understand it. And so these conversations are so important because as the title says, we are separating myth from fact and bringing truth to light so that people can understand that your behavior is very much based upon your biology and that there's no different between, as Dr. Owen said, a physical ailment or a neurobiological one. Thank you, Dr. Rashmi. Thank you, Ro. Uh, Owen, really quick here. Yeah, Vint, we'll come to you in a second. Owen, did you want to throw in a... I, I, had a I had a myth. Direct message me. I just want to address it briefly, and then I can kind of flow into things. Yes. Um, And it was about medications for bipolar disorder and when they need to be adjusted. Um, Medications should work. 
if you're taking them, it's not, you don't just take them endlessly. I wish someone had told me this in the beginning of my journey. If you're taking medication, you should feel better. If it's working, it's not subtle. If you're wondering if it's working, talk to your doctor because it should be working. How long should people give it to work? That's a good question. Um, and that varies wildly per, per person per med. And, um, but the, the short version is, um, for mania relatively quickly um and for depression it takes longer and there are other treatments obviously as well but i the bottom line is they should work and so is there a hint that you should need a medication adjustment are they working (laughs) if you're asking the question the answer is yes i would add though that like you know it can be hard to find the right regimen and i think sometimes i've had people think that we're like withholding it or something or that we you know we 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 have the answer in terms of what would be perfect and just aren't giving it for some reason like there is quite a bit of trial and error and and you have to be you know have that good working relationship with your prescribing doctor um to you know make heads from tails by the way i i want to add in here in the sense of talking about um myths even though we're talking about bipolar myths it's kind of come up it's i've heard a few people say things like well you know bipolar is a, a mental illness it is it's a it's a biochemical issue versus say other things like adhd and i do want to just say one myth is that uh, is that any of these things are not biochemical illnesses every single illness we deal with whether it's borderline personality disorder whether it's adhd whether it's bipolar disorder whether it's schizophrenia depression anxiety they all reside in biochemical issues in the brain every single one of them should be treated that way circuits 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 (laughs) circuits correct i mean it's and it's even learning is circuits and so you know people ask about therapy working it works because it's learning i just really want everybody to understand in in my opinion every mental health issue is a biological issue and that would take it out of this realm of you know gee you're having a heart attack why don't you just get up and walk up come on get up you're having a heart attack just get up and walk and i think that we forget that with depression and all the others as well taking down descartes error boom so we also have another question in the back channel if i may present it to the stage the question is would the moderators be able to discuss the role of ssri meds in precipitating bipolar episodes Yep. So there's data on this. Uh, first off, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, ha- have no role in the management of bipolar depression. They may be useful for other things that come with it, like OCD, anxiety, etc. But they are not effective in bipolar depression. The rate of switch, like are they going to make mania happen if you have bipolar disorder, is lower than we thought, but higher than we'd like. And so tricyclic antidepressants, for example, have very high rates of switch. SSRIs, relatively low, but I'll tell you, my first manic episode, right after someone gave me a lot for the first time, and I was on the floor at 16 years old, shaking <laughs> at 4 a.m. So it's a thing, um, and uh, you know, this is why child psychiatry is a separate medical discipline than adult psychiatry. Um, but the point in getting the diagnosis right in the first place is uh, get the diagnosis right so you don't prescribe things that don't work and the most pernicious thing about SSRIs is that they don't help bipolar depression now it's an episodic condition and so it can be hard to tell what's helping and what's not because time happens and changes happen because time happened um, so that's that's the, the best data we have um, that you know SSRIs can make that happen sometimes 
not as often as we thought, but they don't help for that problem, which is why we don't use them. Having said that, I'm curious to ask, you know, your, your experience, Owen, I have found that, that with well-controlled um, patients who have bipolar disorder, I have found them useful for the anxiety component sometimes. Yep, they do that. They definitely do that. Um, they're as I try to avoid them if I can, but I have giant brain magnets at my disposal to treat those other problems, and so I have the relative luxury of not having to manage OCD with antidepressant medications like SSRIs if I don't have to. But most people don't. So um, the the problem with SSRIs is they may promote cycling over time, and when I'm thinking of bipolar disorder, I'm thinking, can this person stay more well more often? over an expansive time, not just right now. And of course, that's the same argument we have sometimes with the stimulants. And so I, I think that it is important to just remember the nuance, and I think that's what you're saying, of the diagnosis. Yeah, but I actually, I mean, to my understanding, stimulants aren't procycling agents like SSRIs are. They can be, like, make you not sleep because they promote insomnia, and that can be a problem. Um, and, and so sleep, again, core thing here. If we're talking about bipolar disorder for people who just came in the room, sleeping is the most important part. Going to bed at the same time every day is really important. Going to bed is also important and not as important, but like getting regular sleep is crucial. Sleep is medicine. You're that's here. Why I that for bipolar disorder. Yes. I always say that's my patients. What, go the hell to bed? No, sleep is medicine. I tell them to go to hell to bed, too, but that's a different issue. Yes, okay, perfect. All right, everyone, you are here with the Sphere Club. Perfect time for a reset here. Um, this is the Monday Night Mental Health Myths Room, also known affectionately from Dr. Carlane as Jeremy Fox and Friends. Who wouldn't want to be here among us? We've got people from the Sphere Club and, of course, from Mental Health Matters, Needy Tawari. A wonderful frequent uh, sphere collaborator. So I just felt like introducing everyone again. Sue me. Uh, we're talking about bipolar disorder myths. So if you want to ask a question about bipolar disorder, share a myth, feel free to raise your hand. I'm pulling people up who have their bios completed with some information about you know what they're about, who they are, or have their social media things attached. This is not the troll room. One is coming. There will be a sphere club <laughs> troll room. No, Owen, we're doing it. It's happening. Oh, my God. Manic troll room would be great. Um, I also want to say this room. And there will be Red Bull and vodka. <laughs> this room happened because a member of our sphere club asked for it to happen. So uh, you're in the audience. Thanks for asking. And if you ask us for a room, uh, we'll be excited to do it because um, it matters. So requests are accepted. Askshere.club uh, is the website. Go join, get updates onward. Brought to you by listeners like you. All right, with that, Morali, thank you for your patience. What is your question for our illustrious panel? Yeah, uh, hello everyone. Uh, I'm from India. It's currently 6.49 a.m. So hope you're all doing good. Well, good morning. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, okay. I just uh, introduced uh, uh, short myself. Uh, so I'm a discontinued MBBS student uh, from Russia. And... Uh, uh, so yeah, I, I'm doing uh, business in my hometown, so that's my intro. And uh, so I actually I am a, I am a child sexual abuse survivor and uh, mental illness survivor and uh, mental trauma survivor and uh, 
OCD survivor. So that's what uh, I've gone through. And, uh, been through a lot. Uh, Do you have a question? Please share. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't have a question. Uh, I can share about the topic. Uh, we prefer and, not. Uh, Just because we don't want to do trauma dumping. We don't want to do a lot of storytelling. Do you have like a myth about uh, bipolar disorder or something that you've noticed that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just uh, just want to motivate uh, those who are going through a kind of bipolar or schizophrenia or anything, any mental illness. So, is that okay? Uh, if you have a one short sentence or something to share, yeah, but we don't want to get too much into trauma storytelling or anything. This is specifically about bipolar disorder. So, yeah, what's your quick share? Yeah, okay. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, uh, if, you, if you trust the uh, law of nature and the uh, law of uh, its process, and it's gradually, gradual process, you can overcome uh, any mental illness you, can, you are going through. Which may well, be thank anything. you for sharing that, Morelli. So, all right, I think it's important for people to recognize that with the right medical care, which Clubhouse is not, you can definitely live amazingly with bipolar disorder and other uh, diagnoses, and that's what uh, these rooms are all about, is dispelling myths. So, uh, thank and you. Someone f- might even marry you. Thanks, Carlene. Wait, what? Someone what? might what? you anyway. Thanks, Carlene. Love anyway? What do you mean? No, I'm saying uh, it was, it was a, a joke. I have bipolar disorder. You married me. And that is not, not in spite of it. In spite of it, <laughs> it's true. I I think um, I just I was touched uh, a lot by the question uh, previously, and the woman worrying that she was kind of unacceptable, and that ah, you know I, I hate <laughs> because um, I think a lot of times we use stigma around mental health to basically penalize out groups or people we'd like to penalize otherwise, and it's basically the excuse to be, uh, you know, to enforce a hierarchy or to keep someone down. And I think it's used against women a lot in a way it's not used against men quite as much unless they have some other reason you want to keep them down. And, of course, um, mental illness is a reason to keep, you know, that we were the the first into the gas chambers, um, you know, the Nazis killed uh, people uh, who were vulnerable first because they could. Um, This is something that, you know, we need to stand up for vulnerable people, and that means not not accepting uh, putting anyone down or using it as a reason to put anyone down. And and that you know my my joke about Carlene was I you know on our first night meeting we talked about this, and we were uh, you know a couple not not much longer after that, and so being open and honest about who you are um, is penalized by people who don't care about you. <laughs> Not by people who do. That's such a touching moment. I love that. The frontier psychiatry banter is beautiful. All right, Carrie, would you like to ask your question? I see that you're represented by a dog. Carrie, yeah, that's my guy. Um, I'm Carrie. I'm in America, and how am I supposed to follow that? You know, <laughs> but my it's a tough is, act to follow, Carlene and Owen. That's why they have their own show. I know. My goodness, I just can't follow that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is my uh, Leroy. He's my unofficial therapy dog. Um, my question is, um, 
trying to decipher between psychological issues and um, mild traumatic brain injury issues. Not long story short, I'm a mild traumatic brain injury sufferer. I'm almost three years out, and um, there's a lot of conflicting data. Conflicting. I don't know how to speak. But my question, I guess, is how do you know that you're that it is a psychological issue versus uh, a TBI issue versus maybe even something else? And how do you find that provider that can distinguish between the two? Um, I'm having difficulty with that just amongst my care team. If you guys had any hints or suggestions, um, that would be really um, great. I feel like I usually am in a brain trauma room right now, and I gave that up to kind of maybe get us some insight. We're trying to put together a booklet of how to help people who have brain injuries and their families. So um, that's what I'm experiencing person, personally is, is it psychological or is it my brain injury? This is Carrie, and I'm complete. And, and so, I mean, the, 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 the simplest answer to that is, gosh, that's hard. Um, because the brain is where the psychological things happen and the psychological things happen in the brain. And when you have a traumatic brain injury, which I can't really be glib about anymore because my daughter had a massive one this year and is now relatively speaking fine. And I hope will continue to be so. But, um, traumatic brain injuries are real and they change how your brains work and how they wire and how they function. And so is it your feelings? Yes. Is that because of your brain always, whether you have a TBI or not? Yes. Does that change what to do? Maybe. Does it change how you get to feel about it? Well, would you cut yourself more of a break if it was a TBI than if it wasn't? No, I don't think either way. I think what I'm finding is the frustration is the treatment that they want to um, instill if it's one or the other. Does that make sense? I, I want to jump in here. I, I think, you know, at the, working at the crisis center, we see so many people who have had TBIs and then are presenting, uh, you know, meeting what we would call criteria, meaning in, in the DSM, say autism spectrum or maybe a personality structure change or a personality disorder. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, that Owen's getting at is that what is the difference? I mean, you know, in, if we look at it from psychiatry, we say, you know, you can't have uh, autism spectrum unless you were born with it, you know, because it was a developmental issue. And yet I have patients who have had traumatic brain injuries who have affected areas of the brain. And for all intents and purposes, they're not presenting any different. And so uh, differently, I think that I think that's a really hard thing. And I think it's hard for psychiatrists and stuff to get their head around. For me, it's if you're suffering with something that is equal to or as difficult as any mental illness such as autism spectrum or anything else you kind of have it and we ought to not separate them too much you know separating the brain from behavior is one of the things that makes the stigma come out when it comes to psychiatry and the reality is they're not different it becomes different when we have different things to do and different things to do is the question and i i was going through audio of this the other day I have a patient who has a severe traumatic brain injury after being hit by a car. And so much of her function was, an impairment was ignored by the neurologists on the team. She had trouble smelling, and that was one of the worst parts for her. And um, she, she's, she's talked about this and, and allowed me to talk about it publicly like this. Um, and she ended up getting transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, it, and basically, that's it worked for her sense of smell problem. And the, the emotional problem was that it sucked to not be able to smell stuff. 
Now, did she have other issues one way or the other? Sure. But the neurologist said, well, look, this is an impairment. This is what happens. And the amount of it sucking, that mattered. And, and so, you know, when I, when I think about these things, is, do we do anything differently? Well, if we're listening to someone suffering and we can figure out something to do for them, uh, we should. And if we can't, we should also, you know, admit that and maybe try to work with colleagues who might be able to help. And not all things can be helped. But none of it should make you have to feel shittier <laughs> because one thing or the other. Um, because, like, did someone hit you in the head or did life hit you in the face? Well, either way, you're a person and, and deserve to not have to feel shittier because it's one explanation versus another. You know, Owen, I um, wanted to go ahead, vent really quick, and then I want to toss something in. I was going to say, I always joke with my neurology colleagues that, you know, if they could see it on an MRI or an fMRI or CT or on EEG, then it was theirs. Um, otherwise, it was ours. And, you know, for a long time, um, things that were neurological um, issues were psychiatric. I mean, uh, 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 Alzheimer's was psychiatric. And uh, and there's so many illnesses that once we could see it, we said, oh, it's it's not psychiatry anymore. It's, it's a brain illness. And that's what makes me so upset because the reality is, all of these things are brain illnesses. Just because we don't understand them doesn't make them any less biological. Right. Owen, what are your thoughts on, on brainwave bias? I would then pose to you something that is a known psychiatric disorder like Tourette's syndrome, which there is no diagnostic for it. And yet Tourette's was treated by psychiatry for a long, long time, so it comes down to that same kind of question. Right, so that's exactly... What up, Cat? Yeah, I was just going to say, too, you know, along with the traumatic brain injury, right, we also know, right, you know, people who rotated in, in CL psychiatry consult liaison to the hospital in, you know, tertiary care centers where you get people on wacky drug combinations or even just simple things like prednisone, right, can cause a full-blown manic episode in somebody who's never had a manic episode, right? And maybe they had a predisposition to bipolar disorder or maybe not. Sometimes it's unclear. Sometimes people getting treatment for cancer or on a chemotherapy agent become manic, right? And some of those people, right, might go on to have cycles, but maybe not as well, right? And I think it does pose this conundrum of sort of like when it, where is it coming from and does it matter, right? And and it only matters in so much as, as the treatment might be different if, you know, it might be stopping whatever agent they were being started on, right? And sort of making an informed decision about how necessary is that drug for their treatment. Um, you know, and then helping them sort of get back to baseline. But it is this, this, you know, the brain, we don't have like a clear cut answer as to why those things are happening all the time. I think it, most important takeaway for me, medicine is hard. And there are people who get good at things they do every day and see all the time. If you're not getting sufficient answers, get another one, get a second opinion. It's oh, and not gonna crush, crush your team's feelings. What do you think about brainwave neurofeedback? I used to be a neurofeedback tech and do a lot of QEEG stuff back in grad school. <laughs> did it, I did it, I have done it. Dang, dangerous question, I was spending the weekend with Bezel Vandergoek. Oh, oh, okay, all right, we'll see. See, I haven't busted that part of my resume out yet, but when I hear about TBI stuff, Carrie, do, what did you think about it? Because I used to, I had some experience in that. Um, I really think it is helpful. Um, okay. I, it's a very good, very good complimentary therapy. I felt like I got a lot out of it, but again, it's another one of those things that's not covered by insurance. Bingo. And I was injured on the job. I'm a nurse, uh. 
and I was hurt at work. And so I've been off work for three years and obviously funds start to run lower. But um, I really do like what I saw and um, what I experienced. I think there's a lot of different ways. And what I'm finding frustrating is that some of the therapies that would be really beneficial are not available by insurance because they're not necessarily protocol and secondly um there it is it's just hard it really is it's hard we can't see your brain we can't open your brain i tell everybody i wish i would have had a heart attack because i'd be having pancakes with jesus or i'd be back at work i can't fix my brain and neither can anyone else well carrie i mean i i thank you for coming to the stage and asking that sorry that we don't have specific medical advice um Hopefully that at least provided some kind of guidepost there to for you to your continued search. All right, thank you thank so you. much. Absolutely. All right, so um, we want to now go to Bronia. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Beautiful dog. Yes. Okay. Thank you. That's my rescue. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I mean, uh, Dr. Owen and Dr. Colleen, I'm like so big fan, and I really appreciate. Uh, uh, your self-disclosure to you know and the vulnerability because it, it really I learned from it as a therapist and as a person and I really appreciate the feedback to I am from that culture the stigma is really strong and uh, with women specifically because it is used like mental health really get I mean mental diagnosis really used to like to even add to the suffering so I really appreciate that uh, so my question here, uh, because of the myth, uh, now, uh, substance use and alcohol per se, uh, in fact, today I'm a mental health therapist and uh, uh, today I, ha I have one of my clients and like, you know, that's the drinking. So he went, he was, you know, some, you know, Dr. Vint was saying like the diagnosis, he was, he had been suffering for for a long time with, you know, non-specific, sometimes depression, sometimes like personality, sometimes like a drinking. They gave him all these diagnoses and finally he went to an academic center and he finally got diagnosed with bipolar. So my question here, he still, he was not advised, to, you know, on drinking and the amount of drinking, social drinking, all of that. And my question is, how much is too much drinking? Is alcohol, like, you know, uh, the, the influence of alcohol on the, you know, bipolar episodes? If any, you know, is it a myth or like, what do you think? Just like sleeping. So that my question. I don't know if, uh, you know, my question is clear. I like Thank that you. question. How much drinking is too much with bipolar disorder? What do you think, panel? Honest answer, any. Um, it, I mean, if, if you want the actual answer, like if you want your life to go badly and you have bipolar disorder, stay up drinking. Okay, we've got a hard line there from Dr. Owen. We've... Now, just to, I'm curious because you're actually, now I'm, so are you talking more because of the disturbance it has in our circadian rhythms? I mean, if you drink, we stay up late, we do all kinds of stuff that we wouldn't do, or are we talking more directly just the actual cause development of the, of the alcohol itself? So I don't have a good answer for that. We have better answers and data on this for um, cannabis um, than we do for alcohol. Um, and the short answer is for cannabis, it probably makes mania worse and psychosis worse and more frequent, but it is not necessarily an unvarnished bad other than those things, which are bad. Um, alcohol, you know, I, I the problem is everyone wants to be able to drink and no one wants their psychiatrist to tell them they shouldn't. And I, I don't tell people they shouldn't. I just tell people, if you want this to go badly, do that. Um, if they want another answer, it's, it's not true. Um, 
you know, the way my, my attending in residency described is you have an allergy except for one glass of champagne at your sister's wedding. Um, I don't drink any alcohol at all and I never have. And when I was a, a study patient in, in the NIMH trial that I was in and still am a part of because it's a multi-year massive study, um, the doctor who was doing the interview at the beginning said, wow, thank God you don't drink. You'd be dead otherwise. And she wasn't wrong. Um, alcohol increases rates of completed suicide 300%. The rate in bipolar disorder is already 0.4% per patient per year. And over a 20-year follow-up, about 10% of people with bipolar disorder will complete suicide. If you want to die, and if you want to have a life that's a mess, drink all you want and have bipolar disorder. That's the honest answer. I'm much I'm, I'm much less direct with people who are, who are my patients, unless they really ask me to be that direct, um, because it's not helpful. Um, to, to, to tell them that because it doesn't lead to change. But, but the honest answer is it, it will destroy your life. Yeah, I mean, this is Dr. Carleen. I think, you know, in terms of like when Owen was talking earlier about interpersonal social rhythm therapy and stuff, like I think most of the individuals I know that, um, you know, have their bipolar disorder under really good control like they're super protective of their sleep they really don't drink alcohol like Owen said maybe a glass of wine here or there um you know they don't smoke pot like they they really do a quite a healthy lifestyle um because it is such a uh, a balancing act I think um more so than some of the other conditions that we work with so you know, it is a personal choice, but I, you know, I do just think, you know, both personally and professionally, people that do really well tend to steer clear from that kind of other mind altering stuff. Well, and I always tend to, I mean, this is sort of my own personal theory or my own pet theory, but we know sleep quality as well and so for me when i when they actually ask me the question you know i'm like well you know i mean i'm not sure there's a direct cause of effect but we know that if it interferes with your ability to sleep your ability for the brain to do its job when you're sleeping and as clearly we've all agreed on on this panel sleep is absolutely medicine and is absolutely critical to keeping a good healthy lifestyle period thank you very much i just needed that uh thank you very much so i'll go down and listen Thanks. Thank you. That was a really helpful question. Owen, I mean, I thank you for sharing that. I think that's a conversation that, <clears throat> as, as therapists, I know Needy and I have probably had countless conversations with people about, you know, how much of a part do you want alcohol to have? And for some people, it's got to be none. And so part of the grief work of that, of relinquishing that and saying, you know what, I, in, in alcohol is a poison. We're finding more actually out about how it's unhealthy just physically to have any amount of alcohol and the, the benefits were kind of oversold, but that's a whole conversation, maybe for a different room. Ooh, myths about alcohol and I substance. Like I, I'm digging yeah, I mean, it. that's a great idea. The, the trick is not underselling the, the, the grief right. that goes on with knowing you're not going to get to party like everybody else or sure. your life will be a disaster, which sucks, which right. sucks. I don't want to have to tell people what's the actual truth. Right. And so I, I was jumping up and down when I said that. Um, the the there is there is a grieving to do, and the the good news is for young people and any parents of young people or friends of young people, etc. Is as you get older, people give less of a fuck if you're drinking or not, and it 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 the the it goes down to zero fucks given um, as you get older and or more confident. 
and or have a life and sense of self. And so one of the great things about therapy is it lets you figure out who you are and what you want to do with yourself so that you don't have to drink to cover it up or the fact that you don't know. Um, mostly people want to drink so they can go have fun with their friends. And if you can go have fun with your friends without drinking, it's A, cheaper, and B, doesn't destroy your life as much. Hell Look, yeah. Drinking is a destructive coping skill. That's a whole other room we can talk about. We will. Oh, we will. So last call for hand raising. If anyone at, wants to ask a question, raise your hand now. Forever hold your peace. Oh. Lightning around this. Boom. <laughs> oh. Questions. oh, wow. Yeah. What did you call it? Oh, and lightning round? Lightning round? I yeah. just like, you know. At, at a manic pace, if you will. Yes. Okay, so there we go. We'll take a few more, and I'm going to be closing the room down somewhere in roundabout, probably near 10. We'll see. Everyone on stage now can ask their question, and we are going to... Yeah, people have your bios filled out. That's really helpful, because then we actually know that you're probably going to ask something and not troll me mercilessly with something that just takes away from the general tone of the entire room. All right, with that said, Cigar, thank you for waiting. What is your question or myth? You waited so patiently. Please, share your myth or question about bipolar disorder. Cigar, am I pronouncing your name appropriately? Sagar. Is that it? Okay, thank you, Nitty. Well, it seems regardless. That's okay. All right, Osden. Hi, everyone. Um, so back in 2016, I had this period when I was um, restless, couldn't sleep, couldn't sit still. I was going to one friend to the other, you know, to, to have a conversation with whatever subject, uh, spending impulsively, driving really dangerously. And this went on for two weeks, and the trigger was a breakup, actually. And after two weeks, it stopped. Uh, one and a half years later, uh, the same thing started happening. It was similar. I couldn't sleep. I had uh, horrible thoughts of my daughter dying in every bad way you can imagine, every night, every night, every night, and heart palpitations, sweating. It was terrible. And finally, I got diagnosed with grave disease, um, hyperthyroid, not hypo, hyper, the one that makes um, everything go fast. So when I listen to you um, doctors, and I've done a lot of research in the time, what I went through was so similar to bipolar disorder. Uh, my question is, does hyperthyroidism have similar aspects to... Um, Indecision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And this is why being a doctor, like the MD part of, of, of mental yep. health care matters, because there are a lot of things that can be handled um, with, with, with therapy by people who are not MDs. In fact, probably most of them. Some of them, like figuring out if it's Graves' disease or not, require going to medical school. That's one of the reasons we go to medical school is to figure out the difference and make people's lives like yours suck less when things like that are happening by actually getting to the, the underlying answer, um, which is part of the job of doctors. You know, we're talking about bipolar disorder, but any of us who are physicians and hopefully any mental health professionals are also thinking, what else could this be? And why is it not that? Why is it bipolar disorder? Because we've ruled out Graves' disease and everything else that can look just like it. 
I mean, to answer yeah. that question is even even further is it's on my panel of absolute checks. Every single, if I'm going to send you for blood work, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a TSH by free T3, T4, and there's a reason for that. And it's not just a TSH, because euthyroid 6 syndrome is overwhelmingly common in psychiatric inpatients. Hence the free T3, T4, right? <laughs> um, and and this, it's complicated. And, and doctors exist for a reason, because we know all the other stuff that isn't just the feelings you're, and symptoms you're describing. Um, and that's why we work in teams, preferably, not alone. Yeah, um, how could it be so similar to bipolar disorder, what I went through? It was like exactly the same. And so once I started better blockers, what you're I went to normal. Yep, you're what? describing was, was an end state of behavior that people could observe. What it missed to be bipolar disorder was a, a history of any of that having happened before or since any of the prodromal symptoms, any of the things in, in just like there are years of history that lead up to that point. And without that years of history and the lab work, we can't say it's bipolar disorder. No, I just had, um, have had and still have struggled with depression since I was a child, but I've never had what I went through um, twice, actually yep. three times, but for, for how many years now? Since 2019, I'm stable. I've never had any of those um, impulsive thoughts or racing heart, nothing, because my illness is in remission right now. brain is connected to the body, and the body is connected to the brain, and stuff that happens in the body impacts the brain, stuff in the brain impacts the body. Which thing is it that it started at is the question we have to answer. And in your case, it was thyroid, not brain first. Thank you. And the, the thank you for bringing that up because it's so important to recognize that biology plays a role and not everything that looks like a duck is a duck if you don't do all the other duck due diligence, essentially. And the brain is biology. Myth busted. All right. Thank you, Austin. And now we move on to Michelle Rowley. Michelle, uh, co-occurring disorders club creator. Welcome to the stage. What is your myth or... Yeah, what, what's your myth or question for us? So many have been answered. This has been such a fascinating room. I really encourage you to do this one again because I have learned so much from this. Um, so I I have eight, eight and a half years of long-term sobriety from alcohol addict addiction and actively treating um, oh, bipolar. Oh. I am bipolar 2 diagnosed. I know we just... Busted that it, myth. It's, it's not a myth. It's an actual thing. I just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's real. It's complicated. That's the problem. So, um, so much has been, um, so, so I've just learned so much. But I, one of the things is that I wasn't diagnosed um, until 2013 when I was 42. And the only way they said they could diagnose me was um, looking at those periods of sobriety when I had more um, hypomanic periods. And before that, it was always just major depression. And so my life changed drastically when I was put on lithium in 2013. And then all of the suicidal ideation that I had experienced my entire life just disappeared. Um, and I really like the concept of this being a circadian rhythm because I had insomnia since, since I was a child. And so... I still find, I, I have a son, he's 22, and um, I, I 
don't I do not have your guys' education, so I cannot diagnose him. But um, he has circadian rhythm things. But one of the things I was told when he was a teenager was that they they don't diagnose um, bipolar in teenagers, which I think that baffles me. And I've heard, I've heard this from other people as well. And so I guess that's that's one of the myths. I'm wondering how that is yep. lifted and, and so, why yep. why people still um, are getting diagnosed at later age. My life would have been so different had I been diagnosed earlier in, in my life. So this is an enduring question in the field of child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry, mostly child and adolescent, because the pendulum has swung both ways. Um, Carlene's former supervisor, which I say uh, with a snark, um, was someone who did research in bipolar disorder that basically uh, had the contention that all children with irritability had bipolar disorder, which they do not. Um, and so there's overdiagnosis in kids, and there's also under-accurate diagnosis in kids. And one of the problems is, like, there's a difference between I can't say for sure and, well, probably. And, and and a lot of medicine is, well, probably, and probably most, because time elapses and we know more things over time because things will happen that will either prove or disprove hypotheses. And so what you're saying is like when people said like, well, I can't, this is the other reason I'm drink, by the way. Um, if, you, if you really want your doctor to have a terribly hard time diagnosing your problem, make sure you have substance use at all relevant periods of time so they can't tell. Um, <laughs> you'll see. You'll save yourself any amount of accurate diagnosis and ensure years of suffering because you'll befuddle everyone and everything they learned about how to make a good diagnosis is to not have real life get in the way of it. Um, so it is it can is and can be diagnosed in young people, but it's much more rare. And knowing something about the baseline rareness of things is important because the age of onset on average of bipolar disorder is in the late teens, early 20s. That haven't been said. I was a suicidal four-year-old. So something was wrong. We just didn't know what. And for other people, early things happen, like sleep disturbance precedes the onset of illness by two to three years in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And changes are happening in the brain weeks, years, decades before these things happen. And accurate diagnosis has to do with actually spending enough time with you to figure out what the hell is going on one way or the other, or at least have a reasonable hypothesis and then make enough of a relationship with the person that they'll agree to try something crazy like taking a medication for a condition you might have, which in your case turned out to be a trick. So there's a lot of admitting we don't know stuff and coming up with ways to alleviate people's suffering in the presence of ambiguity and not knowingness, which we have to own when we don't know but we're still going to try to help and be wrong when we're wrong. And, you know, I mean, it's, I, I mentioned earlier the CAPS clinic at um, Western Psych and UPMC here in, in Pittsburgh, and this is run by Boris Bermaher, who is a really amazing individual. And the CAPS... Oh, yeah, Boris, by the way, but... Huh? Oh, yeah, I've had... Oh, yeah, I like to go to the programs committee. He's a good friend. He, he, he's an interesting character. I love Boris. But, but he, um, you know, the CAB stands for Child and Adolescent Bipolar Disorder. So let me just refer you. Know, once again, we have a whole clinic called Child and Adolescent Bipolar Disorder. So obviously... Um, there's a lot of literature out there that it is something that we should be looking at in adolescence. And I think the thing is, it's true. We have overdiagnosed it, perhaps. And the problem with when you're young, and child psychiatrists know this, 
um, one thing that can look like one thing and then be a totally different thing when it comes to young people. So that's why we're a lot more flexible and tend to be kind of like more cautious about being certain about what our diagnoses are. But there's no question that early diagnosis is possible and something we really do need to be thinking about more. Well, Michelle, I hope that answers your question. Thank you for bringing that to us. All right. We are going to move on to Steph. I love that you changed your profile picture, Steph, to be uh, that Carlene made you one of those nice uh, PTRs. It's beautiful. What's up? Yes, and yes, and if anyone else wants one, please feel free to uh, to, to message me. I got a fox in mine. Twitter with a profile picture, and I can make you a Sphere Club one. <laughs> What's anyway, up, Steph? So, uh, I'm wondering if someone I have I get TMS at Brooklyn Mines, and when I decided to, to try it, I I was just so tired and thought, just let's just do it. And living in Boston, someone said to me, oh, TMS can't help uh, bipolar. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> that, that, that's not true. <clears throat> so I think it's a myth that that's so. And I'm proof. And... Uh, I'm wondering if uh, someone could explain how they went, uh, how they figured out that this would this would happen, Doctor Muir. Owen, do you want to take this, or do you want me to take this? You can um, you go ahead. You can you can do the first pass, and then I'll, I'll fill in anything. Oh wait, I just have to say one thing. One of the things that someone said to me was, "But you can go get um, uh, treated for depression, and then if you have a manic reaction, we'll just have you go to your doctor, and you can." you can rearrange your medications until you're ready to come back. Right, right. So, so Steph, yeah, so what Steph is referring to is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is um, FDA cleared for depression. Um, and I think, you know, what I would say about that is that, um, you know, people that really like the myths are insurance companies. Um, they seem really into this myth uh, that TMS doesn't help for bipolar disorder. Um, you know, it is an area... Neither do insurance companies. <laughs> yeah, neither do insurance companies, right. Um, so, you know, most of us in the TMS field, um, once you start talking to practitioners, they are doing it for people with bipolar. It's just that the insurance companies are, um, you know, really behind the times um, and holding on to... Um, some, I would say, outdated ideas around that. Um, so, so clinically, um, I think most psychiatrists, you know, do believe that it works. Um, what exactly the protocol is, I think there's still, you know, people interested in the field in, in exactly figuring that out. That's one of the things that, you know, certainly we work on at, at Brooklyn Mines. Um, but, 
but yeah, I think don't believe, like if an insurance company says, you know, this or that is true, you know, I think they should come to one of these Mythbuster rooms and uh, learn a thing or two. Owen? So uh, one of the things about medicine as a field is this was explained to me actually by my neurology teacher in, in the University of Rochester, who is named Ralph Jostefowitz. And if anyone's ever studied anatomy, they've used his textbook. Um, we don't train you to follow protocol here in medical school. You're here to understand basic mechanisms so that you'll understand when to follow protocol and when to break it. And a lot of people will come to, to, to the office for a doctor and they'll be suffering. And the things that we have protocols for haven't helped and might not. And you can follow protocols all day long and they'll work most of the time because that's the point of protocols. And those are good things. We should do the things that are most likely to work first, except if there are reasons not to. And the reasons not to can be like they don't work or they cause too much harm or X, Y, Z. The job of a physician is to understand and, and, and our therapist teammates are, are in the same boat. Um, what what is the underlying problem? And so we try to emphasize in this room and in the Sphere Club generally some underlying problems. Like, is it bipolar disorder or not, right? Is an episode or not an episode? Is the person sleeping enough or not sleeping enough? Do we know what we're dealing with? And that's been the focus of most of this room. Do we know what we're dealing with? Once we do, why is it like that? And at least in understanding how transcranial magnetic stimulation works, for me as a, as a practitioner, um, I asked a lot of questions of people who are working in the field and doing the research actively and got on the phone and talked to them and read their papers and went to the conferences. And one of the things that, that helped me work out in the case Steph is bringing up, and I'm so happy it was helpful for you, is that it turns out that we're dealing with functional connectivity networks in the brain. And when you TMS, it's a little bit like medicine, right? Does medicine help bipolar disorder? Well, yeah, but which ones? <laughs> and at what dosages? And for whom? And when? Um, and so to say, you know, medicine doesn't help is just as untrue as to say TMS doesn't help. Stimulating the brain does things. And if you stimulate the right parts of the brain at the right times for the right people, which is sometimes hard to figure out and won't always follow the protocol, then sometimes you can help. And because people are different, sometimes you have to ask the people you're trying to help if it's helpful and listen to their response and also pay attention to what they look like and how they're doing. Because sometimes you have to listen to the music and not the words, as Carlene likes to say. And so with, with some patients with bipolar disorder, when they get TMS, they get kind of jazzed up if it's on the left side of the brain because that increases neural firing. And it turns out if you take the other side of the brain and you stimulate it in a, in a way that increases firing, it actually turns down firing in other parts of the brain. So doing the same thing at different spots does different things. On the left front of the brain and the right front of the brain, you do opposite things when you speed up neuronal firing. And in bipolar disorder, we know there are problems with uh, what we call mixed episodes, right? People can have symptoms of mania and depression at the same time. And it's quote-unquote anti 
elevates your mood to stimulate on the left. But when we say elevates the mood, we really mean energy and essentially firing in circuits mm-hmm. of the brain. And on the right side of the brain, it's, it slows some of those down importantly. And so sometimes we, we do things like, you know, if you're, if you're uh, trying to get on a balance beam or rather a, a, a seesaw, jumping on one side of it alone will not be successful. You need two people of roughly equal weights on either side to balance something out. And the same more or less is true with neural circuits. And, and that, that was it, the, the kind of key insight in treating people with mixed symptoms of bipolar disorder is that you had to do essentially opposing things at the same time to make it work because things wouldn't be balanced out otherwise to keep as much science jargon out of it as possible. And the way we figured that out is we tried and paid attention and kept very careful track of all of it. And then publish it so our colleagues could see, and then they could look at it, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's an iterative process of listening to our patients and not assuming we know everything. And when someone is suffering, coming to an agreement about what could or should be done that takes their feelings into account. I think that's a, a wonderful segue to move to our next question. Thank you so much, Steph, for bringing that to our attention. That was a great opportunity to learn more about TMS. Thanks. All right. Mish, how are you doing? What is your question? Thank you. My question is about uh, bipolar disorder and pregnancy or women in reproductive age. Uh, And how do you approach um, this question, especially in the postpartum period? Because that can be very uh, stressful and lead to uh, exacerbation. Uh, So how do you, uh, you know, approach these women and what has been your experience in that sense? Such an important question. I wish Dr. Tinkleman was here. She's our perinatal psychiatrist. The, sh- the short version is, um, and I was just talking to a friend about this the other day, um, it's not healthy for a baby in utero to have a parent who's in extreme distress from mania or depression. The trade-off is some of the medications we use have negative effects on the developing fetus understanding what those risks are versus the risks of essentially doing nothing is important. And for every pregnant woman or woman considering being pregnant, it can be quite different, but there is a danger to not having any treatment. And I'm not saying what that treatment should be. And there is, there is a danger to, to some of those treatments more than others. Oftentimes we're talking about medication. Lithium, for example, has a risk in about 1% live births of uh, Eisenmenger's abnormality, which is a heart defect, which is reversed by surgery. The risks in divalproic acid or Depakote are much higher. There are severe birth defects around 10% of women and their, their, their children. So we don't like that <laughs> as doctors. Um, there are less no, lesser known risks to some of the other things but still risks. There are even women who get electroconvulsive therapy throughout the course of pregnancy. It's actually the state of the art. It is. It's safer for the developing fetus than um, than the chemicals. Uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation is actually being used in Europe now as magnetic seizure therapy because it turns out you can induce seizures better with CMS than you can with ECT in some cases. 
And so, look, this is a difficult question that requires hyper-specialists um, who are very good at what they do. And most of that process is just helping you understand risks and benefits and letting you make decisions collaboratively with your doctors. And OBGYNs are comparable at this. And Carlene can say a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that um, I hear a lot from people whose family members, loved ones say, oh, you have bipolar, you know, you shouldn't have kids or you need to come off all your meds. So there's all kinds of myths around that. I think we should do a, a you know, a room on, on myths in terms of pregnancy and mental illness. Um, and I think anyone that's that's contemplating this, there are wonderful perinatal specialists out there. Um, you can message us, we can, you know, get you in touch with with folks in that sort of network um, because it's really worthwhile to go to one of them. There's a wealth of knowledge and uh, Mass General also has a women's uh, mental health site that that goes through like really good detail for uh, general audience around different medications during pregnancy as well as during breastfeeding. So it could be a really good resource. Yeah, because I was going through ACOG and the only thing that I really came up with is, you know, just the atypical uh, anti-epileptics and there's not, not much uh, given in terms of experience of people. So it, it's very redundant, I feel, and it's not very, um, I don't know, it's not very encouraging for, you know, people who are uh, still reading about it, like I'm an intern, so it becomes very confusing on my part to go through all of that. So yeah, that's why I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. I, I, would, I would go straight to the M to MGH because um, they, they maintain a pretty active registry. And, and are constantly kind of updating with the latest uh, the latest research. And I think most OB people are tend to be a bit more um, like conservative and focused on, on the, the baby, whereas psychiatrists will be focused more on kind of the overall health and the stress on the baby of mental illness. Um, and, you know, I think it's best when they work together. But, I, I you know, I, I start with MGH for my definitive uh, source. And I... And I actually worked at, uh, as do did some consult liaison psychiatry for quite some time at the McGee Women's Hospital um, in my fifth year of child psychiatry. And so I worked with a couple of the really good psychiatrists there who worked exactly with this. McGee Women's Hospital, of course, that's what they do. It's perinatal is a lot of the specialties they have. And we certainly know that untreated depression, untreated bipolar disorder, untreated schizophrenia have incredibly important effects on the fetus and on the, the, the newborn child with regard to uh, maternal bonding and everything else. So we always ask the question, um, you know, it's a risk-benefit question. In medicine, everything is a risk-benefit question. Every single thing is a risk-benefit question. The question is, does the risk of treating the illness overshadow the risk of the actual treatment? And certainly in depression and bipolar disorder, we're certainly coming around to that conclusion. I know that we do not generally, as a rule, stop lithium on a well-controlled bipolar patient who is going to have a baby in spite of the one percent effect of of epstein's anomaly because of the fact we can treat it and because a horrible manic episode or depressive episode is more likely to have more of an effect on the bonding of the mother and baby than the treatment is going to have on my, my easiest takeaway on this is I have a sample size of one here, but 100% of bipolar perinatal psychiatrists I know kept taking their lithium when they were pregnant. All right, thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Carlin, what did MGH stand for? Was that the McGee Women's Hospital? Or? M Mass, no, Mass General. Oh, Mass General Hospital. 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 Man's yeah. greatest hospital? No, uh, Mass General Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Harvard. Uh, Vint, did you want to toss something in here before we move on, or did you already? I already tossed in what I wanted. Sweet, to thank you. He sassed it up as much as he was going. Booyah. Okay. 
All right. Thank you, Mish. Noel, thank you for your patience. Hi there. Um, wow, I didn't plan to talk today. Um, I'm listening. I have a teenager, and they don't diagnose it as bipolar. And the psychiatrists don't say bi bipolar, but it's good to see this kind of um, information. I'm just listening and appreciating all you guys taking time to share. I, my husband and I texted him. He might join in the future room. But you guys are really doing good work. And I would just ask if you could do a teen room, I'd be really happy because <laughs> I've got two teens and they were struggling. They had a hard time on the COVID. We had a 5150. And we're good, but I could use the support. So I love listening to you all talk about medications are okay. Letting them be is okay. Being part of the family is okay. So I just wanted to give props to everybody. And I follow lots of you guys, and I hope the audience does, because I hope more rooms like this show up in my feed. Club. Tap the sphere logo above Jeremy's head. It's a little greenhouse. You can join us. You can follow us. We we will be very happy with you. Sphere.club is the website. If you go on asksphere.club, um, you can just enter your phone number or your email, and um, we will send out either an email or a text like right before we're doing rooms. So really oh easy. My. Wait, say that all again because that is so, really great because I am a business developer, and I listen a lot, and I have no clubs or courses but i often ask people i'm missing you guys i'm missing it i'm missing these rooms so say it again please because i'm going to do it it was yes ask so it's ask sphere so a a s k sphere um dot club um and it will just if you go to there um you can either enter your email or your phone number to get um sms messages or emails um before we open up rooms and we do rooms that we're doing with sphere um or other rooms that you know probably me and owen are involved in across the platform um there you can also sign up for our um Substack, which is the fancy word for newsletter frontier psychiatrists you can see some of our podcasts it's really a whole uh it's, it's just kind of a home base for the sphere club so asksphere.club so i'm gonna say I'm going to say dang and good on you guys because so many rooms don't have the tools to help their listeners engage and you guys really did. So I've well, typed it you. in and I'm going to do it and bless you guys. I want to say also as an old Honolulu bar, uh, Star Bulletin uh, reporter, uh, the Mahalo is definitely appreciated. Oh, I'm Hapakama Aina, dude. I lived there for like eight years, and I express aloha. If you call my voicemail, it says it, and I, I live aloha, and and that helps me. But this room is really good, so good on you guys. And if anyone wants to right now, just direct message me. I will just zap you the Club so you don't have to remember to write it down while we're gone. Thank you, Noel. Everyone, I think once it hits about 10, this always turns into like a late night radio call-in show. Like I feel like the last, it was like a caller. Like, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing, everyone, Noel. Like, thank you, caller. Owen, oh, do you get those vibes? Like once it hits 10, yeah, I feel like a DJ. We're switching hours. We got one more question. We'll we answer got, it. But that's right. Ask Sphere.club as many people as message us in the meanwhile. Ask Sphere.club. <laughs> We're wrapping it up. You're the last one. That's right, Pandini. 
Hello everyone, it's really nice to be here. I would like to direct my question to Ms. Nidhi and Dr. Roshanak. And my question is this. When, um, all right, my question is simply put, how do we recognize the telltale signs of when we are heading towards a more dangerous path or a dangerous period, something that might turn into an episode? So how do we recognize those signs? And secondly, how what are some instant steps that we can take to curb that to like say if you don't if you're not near your medication or anything like that what are some like quick relief steps that we can take to alleviate that problem thank you so much i'm complete well Vandini, thank you so much for this question this is nidhi speaking um you know i so i can take the first part of the question uh which was about how do you develop the self-awareness um to be able to recognize when you might be struggling and i think it's actually a really great question because it, it takes some uh connection to recognizing your own uh, indicators, right? So everybody kind of, there's some common ground, but I think everybody kind of has their signs and symptoms that they're kind of going into a, a place where they may in, endure even more struggle than they normally do. And so that may be changes in your sleep, it may be changes in your appetite, it may be the difficulties in the way that you're functioning day to day, you know, being able to look at how you're responding uh, in terms of interpersonal relationships, all of these different factors can be indicators that your functioning is changing and sometimes it's really helpful especially in the beginning stages when you're first developing the awareness to, to tag team in friends and family that know you super well that can just gently nudge uh in a very kind-hearted way and be like hey is everything okay and it kind of signals to you that oh wait a minute they're noticing something is different what is that and so i find that as you develop the ability to kind of put words to your experience that oh i'm feeling anxious right now or man i'm in the midst of a really deep depressed episode or hmm, this is maybe uh, you know a moment where I'm going through a manic episode right like being able to to notice some of those signs um, that are specific to you I think is really important but in the process of doing so it's okay to loop in your your supports and your friends and family um, so I hope that that is helpful Vandini. Thank you so much that was really helpful. Thank you Vandini that was great Owen. Thank you, everybody. We have a really exciting show coming up on Friday that I want Carlene to mention. Carlene! Cats! Uh, yes, if you uh, pull to refresh, I've, I've changed my... <laughs> ...to these two little cats. These are called the Blazed Cats. Um, and this is a, a NFT project um, that is raising... I think they're now at to like $260,000 for Mental Health America. Um, so our show on Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time, New Frontiers, will be focusing on NFTs. Um, it's going to be a room, if you know nothing about them, come and learn. We'll have, I think, a fun little Jeopardy game. Um, and we'll also have um, the folks that are involved with this amazing Blazed Cats project, as well as a couple other um, mental health projects in the NFT space. So we're super excited about that. We're also going to be announcing plans for our own project in the space. So yes, don't miss it. Sign up at asksphere.club for, for notifications. And uh, if you are in the market to donate to charity, uh, go to the uh, these Blazed Cat people because it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Thank you, Dr. Carlene. That was amazing. I love that. I'm so excited. I will be there, guys, on Friday helping to MC. Can't wait to learn more. 
Uh, I know a bit about NFTs, but the Blaze Cats thing is going to be absolutely great, and you and you twist on it. Uh, and with the Frontier Psychiatrist, it's always a blast, whatever subject we're tackling. So, be the great Frontier Psychiatrist twist on it. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining another Mental Health... Oh, Nitty, do you have an announcement that you would like to make? Or are you just clapping? No, no, I'm so sorry. I was trying to clap. No, you're great. And I failed. So well, no, no, no. You joined us. I wanted to. I wanted to give anyone here an opportunity. Our, our stalwart, amazing mod squad that has stayed with us until 10 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time here to conquer myths about bipolar disorder. You've all been such warriors for wellness. I salute you all. I'm getting kind of a Viking vibe here at 10 p.m. Apparently, <laughs> weird stuff starts to happen at 10. <laughs> So much fun. Well, I can throw in a room, Jeremy, that's coming up at the yes. end of August under, um, yeah, that would be awesome. It's under a Mental Health Matters Club, which uh, I do frequent collaborations with all of the wonderful people here on the stage. Uh, but this room is going to be about how to tell your story without trauma dumping. So you heard Jeremy kind of use that word earlier and, you know, that we want to be able to share about our vulnerabilities and circumstances that we've overcome. But sometimes it can be really challenging to know what details to include in that story. So I've got some storytelling experts that are going to be joining us. These are people that are like get paid ten, twenty thousand dollars to speak, uh, and that'll be on Saturday. I think. Well, so we might be actually doing this on Sunday, August twenty second at one p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, yeah, looking forward to having everybody join. Thanks, Jeremy, for letting me shout that out. You're welcome, Nady. Awesome shout out, Ro. What's up? Hi, Dr. Rashad here. So we also in my club at Access to the Path are having a room on Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 5 p.m. UK, 6 p.m. Central European Summertime on the traditional versus modern approaches to mental health and healing, where we're going to have the famous Dr. Carlene and Jeremy Fox also join us. And Dr. Owen, if you have time, we'd love to have you there. Um, where we are going, and also some shamans who will discuss with us the various approaches that we can take to mental health using evidence-based procedures and modalities, discussing them, critiquing them, and really bringing back the light of sanity, I may use that word, to, um, to understand really what are our different options so that we're not just having a bunch of snake oil salesmen and woo-woo peddlers out there talking about what works and doesn't work. And so that we also have a more balanced approach to how we can address um, different mental health illnesses. Thank you. I, I love the word sanity, and I, I hope it comes back into common use because it's so much more useful than mental health. Uh, there are plenty of things. <laughs> my, my, my active definition of this, and then I'll shut up and we get another room. Um, Actually, can I say one thing, Dr. Owen, specific to you? Thank you. So I did have a question that came up in the back channel, but we didn't really have a chance to address it. And so hopefully we'll be able to do it on Wednesday. So maybe if you had a chance, you could come. But the question was, is there a room for alternative narratives to bipolar that aren't as medically focused in this room? So maybe you'd like to make a guest appearance on Wednesday and discuss that. I think it's so crucial because like the stories we tell ourselves matter. And and the meaning we make out of any of this is important. We were here to dispel myths about medical information, which is important, and talk a little bit about other stuff too, but there are alternative narratives that are just as valid if they help you live a better life for you. And I, we're not right a lot of the time. 
we get stuff wrong and and it's important to recognize that someone's story of their experience that is validating and helps them understand is crucial and respecting those narratives is crucial there are you know things that we understand as medical facts which change over time as new evidence comes in but the story that helps you get from point a to point b is never going to be i have bipolar disorder and that's it it's always going to be a story that helps you understand why to go from where you are to where you should be. So, illuminating. first of all, I've been doing lots of rooms on storytelling, so I love what you're saying in the way that storytelling has, for tens of thousands of years, affected the way that we've managed ourselves as a civilization. But also, can I just take a moment, and nobody knows what I'm about to say, but I'm really, Uh-oh. really, really untouched. It's true, be careful. I'm really touched by the level of professionalism that Dr. Carlene and Dr. Owen bring to mental health. Yes. Honestly. Seriously, look, I come from a medical family. Everybody in my family is a physician. I, I work doing deep brain stimulation, neuropsychiatric disorders, teams of psychiatrists and neurosurgeons and neurologists. And really, the the half of what you want from your physician is skill, and the other half, is bedside manner, is understanding, is being able to hear you, resonate with you, and rather than treat the illness, treat the patient. So I just want to say I am so, so proud to be on the same stage and to know you, Dr. Carlene and Dr. Owen, and really appreciate what you bring to improving the human condition for everyone, because even if you help one life, you've helped all lives. So thank you so much for what you mm, do. Thank you. <laughs> so that's so nice. And I'm glad you're saying we're professional as we have our, our little cats and our, our fun little, uh, what is it? What is that? Oh, the bird of prey, Owen, that you have from our party. Right. <laughs> right? right? Sleeping night cat. Interesting, right? <laughs> well, I mean, who said that you can't be fun and professional? That I mean, that this is why yeah. you guys are so great. Because Hell yeah. You, you bring the humanity back to everything that's just really been getting lost so i'm so grateful thank you and and uh, and a special thank you to to before we close the room to all of our patients who've taught us humility because every time you need to learn it you look no further than the people who are coming to you for help and that's those are those are the heroes that keep us going honestly seriously at the end of the day it's those successes and those struggles and that perseverance that makes any of this doable. So thanks everyone who's ever trusted us for help. And I hope uh, this has been helpful to those who are wondering if help might be helpful as well for them. And with that, Jeremy, I'll let you guys out. Thank you, Owen. Vint, do you want to share anything at the end here? I wanted to say that, you know, talking about the heroes of mental health, which I think is really important, and I think psychiatrists get a bad shrift, a short shrift, actually. Um, I've been doing a photo series around Pittsburgh of a lot of the psychiatrists, as well as nurses, uh, psychiatric nurses, as well as uh, first-line responders. Uh, and I, anybody who wants to look at vint.com, very simple. I've been in this for a long time, so obviously I, I own my own domain name. Um, but anybody who wants to look at vint.com, I've got a photo series there of first responders, um, in black and white and i'd love to get comments and stuff i'm trying to kind of push people to look at that stuff all right vent thank you all right everyone a few more seconds here before i close the room out to follow the moderators follow the sphere club check out that house above me that says sphere right beside it 
and just go ahead and follow that room. You'll get you'll get so many more amazing rooms like this. It sounds like we're going to be doing a substance use myths and postpartum mental condition myths as well for the women because for for the pregnancy capable individuals because that's such an unbelievably massive topic. And the dads involved. Thanks. The dads involved. Yes. All right. Good night, everyone. Come back for more next week. Come back Friday, 1 p.m. Frontier psychiatrists become NFTs. Will they ever return from that? I don't know. They're going to be cats. <laughs> What's going to happen? We're going to go move to the metaverse. Metaverse. We're already, uh, we're already there. Meow. We're metaverse. Good night, everyone. Good Has been the show. You can follow us on the internet at asksphere.club and the substack listed on asksphere.club is thefrontierpsychiatrist.com where you can catch audio, podcasts, transcripts, articles, resources, and other assorted awesome stuff. It's the best. A special thank you to Carlene for making the whole site. Thanks, honey. You're the best. Have a great night, everybody.